It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hey folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey guys, good evening. Welcome to episode 146 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with Dave Park. And our guest tonight is Pete Perry. He served in Marine Recon and in MARSOC uh, in on some of those early deployments to Afghanistan, also deployed to Iraq, uh, served as a young enlisted guy. We're really excited to have you on the show here and kind of hear a little bit about the birth of MARSOC and, and how the unit developed and about some of your personal experiences in combat with the unit. So, Pete, thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, thank you guys both for having me on. Super excited to be on here and just kind of tell the story that not so many people know about. So thank you guys again for having me on. It should be a fun night. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And, you know, I want to start off asking you about your origin story, about a little bit about your personal background, your personal history, and, and the path that sort of took you into the Marine Corps. Yeah. So uh, funnily enough, uh, I actually almost joined the Air Force. I'll get to that here in a second. But um, grew up military brat. My dad was a Wizzo in F-111, flew in the first Gulf War. And then he was a backseater, uh, F-15E on the Strike Eagle, did a cool deployment to Bosnia. So he and I have a very unique father-son relationship. Uh, but that did cause us, I mean, we lived all over the world. I spent 10 of my 18 years uh, living in England and the Netherlands and then throughout the United States. Um, grew up, you know, like I said, big time military family, both grandfathers. Um, one was in the Navy. He was on, I think, the USS Terror like a wooden hull minesweeper in World War II. Uh, other grandfather was a paratrooper in the army in like 1951 in Germany, um, which is actually really cool. I have his original lead sleds, which is, that was a pretty cool gift once I graduated basic airborne. Um, and then from there, probably grew up a lot like you guys did, playing army or cops and robbers or something out in the woods or in the backyard all the time. Um, and then from there, just grew up, 
getting ready, you know, to kind of that fork in the road. Hey, am I going to go to college, get a trade or join the military? Um, and then at that point, I had started talking to an Air Force recruiter. Hey, man, come on in, Pete. You can do security forces. They're the elite of the elite. And you the can do Ravens. all the cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, dirty recruiters, right? And uh, <laughs> from there, like I made it as far as up to MEPS. And then I actually left MEPS just somewhere in there. I was like, you know what? This, this isn't for me. This seems like a really rushed decision. Got home. Uh, the Air Force recruiter actually called me like on, you know, this is 2002. So still on the house phone landline. Uh, Pete, what, what the heck, man? I thought you were in. I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. Don't contact me again. Hang up the phone. Hand still on the phone. It rings again. Hey, this is Sergeant Jones, U.S. Marine Corps. You ever think about joining the military? And I'm like, yes. And then from there, like, cool, what's your address? I'll be there in 20 minutes. And the dude showed up. Um, So, yeah, and then from there, joined right in. I was 17 when I enlisted. Uh, And then back to that that father-son relationship, I actually had to get a waiver uh, sent to a bunker in Saudi Arabia where my dad was hanging out doing some of the air strategic or just the air planning for the invasion into Afghanistan. Got that, and then you know, made my way through the rest of high school and joined the Marine Corps in 2003. And uh, the way the Marine Corps works, worked or still works, uh, you served in the infantry, I take it, before going the recon route? No, no, I didn't. So um, at that time, um, let's see, when I first went in, I went in to be a satellite communications specialist. Oh, really? You know, hey, I can go out and go get a, get a good job with a phone company or right. whatever, you know, half truth my recruiter told me and then you know so i made it through boot camp and then if you're a pogue if you're not a non-infantryman then you go to marine combat training which is only three weeks so it's like you get to go larp infantry right you get to go pretend infantry for like two weeks you sleep in the dirt and it's it's real rough um and then after that i went out to radio operator school and just from there um I had a very different opinion of the Marine Corps. You know, I don't know if that happened to you guys going through your pipelines where I thought every Marine was like John J. Rambo, six foot two, 280 pounds, just meathead. And I remember one of the guys I graduated with at boot camp, like wet the bed almost nightly. And I'm like, man, like I got the same thing as me. I got to get away from these kinds of guys. So what, where, did, where was your, like your radio school? And were most of the people there were like, kind of training for like sort of like fob type radio or satellite communication stuff, or was it all like, how did they split that out? Sure. So everybody goes in just field radio men. So that's your, you know, one nineteens, one seventeens at the time. I think we were selling the PRC fives, just the man portable, larger radios. And then from there, if you're in the top couple percent of that, you go to a follow on course. And then if you're at the top couple percent of that, then you make it to that satellite communications specialist or whatever the MOS title is. Um, so just that it gets smaller and smaller. Uh, and just as luck should have it, I was smaller and smaller. Uh, and just as luck should have it, I was actually, uh, I was at radio operator school during the Christmas leave block. So I came back with a snowboard. One of the instructors saw me, we started to talk uh, and he had lead sleds. So of course, you know, I'm a yeah. young Marine. I'm going to ask him about it. Hey, what are those? Where did you get them? Uh, the short of it is he had just come from third recon battalion as a radio operator and tells me all of these things about Marine recon, which I had never heard about. 
Um, you know, obviously I grew up reading books about Rangers, Lerps, SF, guys in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. No clue what Marine One was. Um, and then just as luck should have it, at the end of that radio operator course, they had four slots to third recon battalion in Okinawa, Japan. And I got one of those slots. And that that right there is what just kind of lit that fire and really changed my trajectory uh, in in the Marine Corps. They put you some, uh, they still call it in-doc when you went through? Mm-hmm. Yep, very similar to you guys and RASP. We have RASP or RIP, uh, Recon in-doc platoon, um, where you're a roper. You actually wear your rope. It's a very specific knot that you have to wear. And then um, you've got to wear that and a 45-pound sandbag and run everywhere uh, until probably – yeah, if you're going anywhere, you're you're gonna wear that stuff. If you're caught without it, you're probably gonna do at least you know five hundred, a thousand, eight counts. You'll get some incentive exercise, as they say. Um, and I did that for probably three and a half, four months, and then I went to basic reconnaissance course in Coronado, California, in two thousand four. Now, how that must be tough for them to to find guys that go up through the Camo course. Because they're not guys coming from the infantry who are already used to field conditions or in shape or whatever. Like, I mean, every Marine yeah. coming out of boot camp is in shape. I'm not going to say that. But but it's probably a different type of person coming up through the combo course, right? Big time. Very different type of person. Nothing wrong with that. The services still need that type of Marine. However, to your point, a very different mindset and a very different view towards that profession. Right. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, if there's like 50 kids in my com class then four of us got orders to go to recon and then out of that four two of us uh were assessed and selected and then i was the only one that made it out of that right so it's kind of that just volunteer the same stuff you guys went through you know 100 people volunteer show up and then it just gets smaller and smaller yeah and was there quite a shortage of combo guys there because combo guys and corpsmen i imagine are like they're tough to get into that into that field it's tough to get people to stick around and then it's tough. I mean, that's a hard job. Yeah. You know, as you guys know, traditional greenside patrolling, you know, you've got the one or two guys that are on watch that are awake and everybody else is going to catch some sleep if they can, depending on priorities of work. Um, but if you're that calm guy, especially if you're doing HF calm shots in double or triple canopy jungle in Okinawa, Japan, you're, you just won't sleep until you get calm. Yeah. Uh, and I think just the weight too, you know, you're, you're going to carry a lot of stuff and you guys know too, when you're that younger guy in that team or that platoon, they're going to test you. So, mm-hmm. Hey, you're going to carry extra 55 nineties, or you're mm-hmm. going to carry the software, whatever it is. Um, they want to make sure that when things get really sideways that you're there, you know, you're going to, you can perform and do your job. So now for most guys going into, you went into recon or force recon, I'm sorry. I went to recon first. Most, I mean, don't a lot of guys have to spend, like infantry guys, do they have to spend a bit of time in the fleet before they can go recon? Yeah, it's. I, I believe it's changed now. I think you've got to be at least an E4, I think, to go assess and select or be selected. Um, or maybe it's like two years time in service. They've, they've done a little bit of that revamp. Uh, uh, when I first went in, they did kind of like an 18 x-ray program where okay. – Taking guys straight off the street, and you would go to boot camp, your infantry school, get whatever infantry MOS, and then go straight to recon school. Um, and so I think there's probably wise of them to get, a, you know, let a guy get another 
couple of years of experience under his belt. I mean, and you just have more to offer your team and your platoon at that point as well. Yeah. So for, you know, I know we're going to talk about all this stuff, but for the people who, uh, who might not be familiar with like the different things in the Marine Corps, can you tell us sort of the function of recon, the function of forest recon, and then the function of MARSOC? And I know we'll get into the story of sure. MARSOC, but. Yeah, yeah. So uh, recon is going to really service more of the, the division and maybe MU level. Um, they're traditionally more of a reconnaissance asset for the Force Recon guys. Force Recon, um, you know, prior to MARSOC standing up would be on a MU, so a Marine Expeditionary Unit. So that's a handful of Navy vessels with a bunch of Marines, and they're kind of the really big, slow war uber, um, you know, should something kick off. And then from there, the Force Recon guys, you know, typically if they were on a MU, they would be called, you know, MU and then SOC capable. You know, they have a special operations capability. They could dive. They could do, you know, static line or military free fall. A lot of the direct action and then a lot of just, you know, we'll call it sniper support. Um, and then from there, the biggest difference probably is just the title. It was a Title 10 and just a lot of the authorities that you're given and granted once you're actually in, in a part of U.S. SOCOM that big Marine Corps, Force Recon, and the Recon Battalions don't have. Correct me if I'm wrong, Pete, but uh, doctrinally, isn't the idea that recon acts sort of as uh, like scouts, like maybe 20 clicks ahead of the, the front lines of the Marine Corps, and force recon was designed to work further, you know, 80, 100 kilometers ahead of those front lines? Correct. Correct. And that certainly goes back to the Vietnam days, mm -hmm. you know, just a lot of that lineage of, and dude, you're exactly right, probably in terms of distance as well, that deep reconnaissance, you know, ability that a force recon platoon would have. So that, that's another big differentiator. And then just experience as well. You know, when I went from recon battalion, the average rank was probably E4, E5. Uh, then you go up a notch. It's, I think maybe the closest equivalent would be maybe, you know, RRD for you guys, mm -hmm. where it's going to be the guys have a bunch of experience, a bunch of deployments, um, and they've been assessed and selected again at a higher level, but still within kind of that ranger umbrella. Yeah. Uh, well, before we get into all this, the MARSOC stuff, um, can you tell us about hitting the ground as a recon Marine, what that was like when you got to your unit and, and then gearing up for deployment? Absolutely. So I graduated basic reconnaissance course, uh, I think fall of 2004, and then um, caught probably tail end of our pre-deployment workup. So just a lot of, again, heavy guns, you know, we threw in uh, while I was at school, the guys did, you know, a hey-ho package down in Australia. Um, and then from there, a lot of it, we really were just the basics of just greenside patrolling. And then a lot, uh, you know, very suddenly that shift focused towards more of a direct action. Mm -hmm. And within that time, you know, the beginning of our shooting package started a lot of like the stack tactics, like hall boss, really old style, like, you know, everybody ducks in a row behind one gun, really old style CQB. Um, and then it transitioned from that to a little bit more of like the dynamic five man clears, that kind of thing. And then we actually left Okinawa in February of 05 and we went and spent a month in Southern California. Um, at which time we did some really good, I would say, as realistic a training as I'd, as I'd seen it at that time. There's a place down in San Diego called Seagal Studios. It's not Steven Seagal. It's a, another guy. And, uh, you know, that was the first time I'd ever seen, like, the mock-up villages, a lot of the moulage and some of that stuff for medical training. 
saw a lot of that. And then we, let's see, we got to Fallujah, Iraq in March of 05. And then at that point, you know, it was my first deployment and we're in Fallujah, we're on the mech, we're on Camp Fallujah. And for the entire workup, you know, we're watching glimpses of like the Battle of Fallujah. So we're really excited and hyped up that this is where we're going to go. We're absolutely going to fight, you know, hope we all make it back was honestly the mindset going into it. And when we got there, we spent a lot of times in more of the rural area outside uh, called Zidon, Uh Emeria. There's a couple other spots outside of like Fallujah proper. And I would say at that point, probably misused a lot of times, very much like a conventional line or infantry asset where, you know, we would go out and do a presence patrol. We would, we would average probably three to four foot patrols a day. So kind of a presence patrol, a cache sweep uh, with disruption. And then at night, you know, we'd move firm up somewhere else and then go hit a dry hole. You know, our intel and this the fusion of intelligence coming in, I would say we were probably zero for we didn't have a single <laughs> we didn't have we didn't have a single target. So it was I'm, very I'm trying to remember the dates, but uh we had uh Matthew Cothran on here, episode one nineteen, who was a canine handler out with Force Recon okay. in Fallujah. I wonder if he was with you guys. Oh man, that name almost sounds familiar. Dog, dog handle. He got shot out on a in, in a building. It's uh, his name is uh, Chaps from yeah, Barstool. Chaps. He's on he's on Barstool. There is a radio host. It doesn't ring a bell. No kidding. That's a huh. I'll, I'll shoot it to you later. You can take a look. I mean, for sure, you guys must have known some of the same dudes. I guarantee it's it's very small. Yeah, guaranteed. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Yeah, so, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. You're good. You're good. And so that was just. Um, you know, we got in one, I can't even call it a full gunfight. You know, it was one of those things where we had two different factions of Iraqis fighting one another and then they saw us and then both turned on us. <laughs> it was like a couple rounds at them and then they left and we're like, huh, I guess I shot a guy. I'm not really sure. I mean, I saw him fall down, but all right, cool. And that was it. And for 10 months, you know, we drove around, we got blown up a bunch um, got really good at doing direct action, but just never anything kinetic with inside of, of any of the targets. Um, and then I left that deployment just like, oh, that's that's it. Huh. And then so that was most of 2005. So we were right in between both really big Fallujahs and then really big Ramadi. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember I got home from that deployment. And by that point, I'd been in probably half of my enlistment. And I remember I called uh, called the monitor in the Marine Corps, the guy that's in charge of your, you know, your job field. And I remember asking, hey, I'd like to go to First Recon Battalion. And I want to do one more deployment to Iraq, make some tax-free money, and then get out and go to college. And he was like, actually, we're not going to send you to First Recon, but we'll send you to First Force. Do you know anybody over there? And I was like, oh. All right, cool. I, yeah, I know a couple of guys and, you know, definitely the, the lore of like forced reconnaissance was, you know, right. It was intimidating, very, very intimidating. And so, and then, you know, kind of the, the same thing is almost like that comm school where it's like, I could have gone left and just gone to like an infantry unit or a support unit, but instead, you know, I was very fortunate and was allowed to go to recon. Um, and this was another one of those very just right place, right time. Hey, dude, we won't take you at Battalion Recon, but we'll put you at Force Recon. And so I got there in December of 05. And then just, yeah, very, very exciting, very fast-paced. It was it was a cool place to be at that time. Well, well what, what was the difference between Recon and Force Recon? I, I mean, I know we laid it out a little bit, but from your own personal experience. Sure. 
So by that point, I was an E4, had done one combat deployment, and a lot of those guys were already on their second, some going into their third rotation. The Just the sheer just folklore itself of like, you know, you're walking through like the company hallway and you're looking at some of these pictures and you're like, well, I've, I've read about that, like the sunrise at midnight. Like mm-hmm. I know about that recon team. And now I'm here. Like these are really big shoes. Like I'm not, I can't fill this. You know, it's just a young man, and then you're there, and you're just you. I'm sure, like you guys, when you first check into a place like that, you're just you feel like you're surrounded by giants almost. Like you're around guys that you look up to, Um, and again, just the community being so small, guys that may have left Third Recon Battalion that I looked up to, like when I first got there, like you know that guy's already checked in and done a deployment, and so I'm already you know very intimidated, honestly, as a young man, very intimidated, but then really excited to get to work. In terms of one of the funny things about the Marine Corps is, you know, the the Marine Corps at large, at least the command at large, there are no elite Marines, all Marines are all Marine or elites. We don't need elite forces. And that's really stood in the way of like recon and force recon because they're both really top notch organizations. How how did that culture work between you and and the big Marine Corps? It's a pretty contentious relationship. I'm sure that it still is, you know, speaking with the the guys that are still in, um, you know, that was the original kind of summation of why the Marine Corps didn't join us. SOCOM yep. when it stood up in the eighties, you know, you can't have an elite force within an elite force to your point, David. And so, um, really highly contested, honestly. Um, I mean, you would just be walking through if you did have to go on or be on the main side of Pendleton. I mean, your uniform looked a little different, probably some of the devices, you know, you're wearing your dive bubble or jump wings or just things like that, that would honestly become almost a target. Um, You know, and I'll say, I'm trying to think of a funny story. Yeah. I mean, dude, I, I don't know if this ever happened to you guys. We'll go back to Camp Fallujah. I'm a young E3, maybe E4 at the time. Hey, we're going to go out for three days and do counter IED on route mobile. So you're living in a hole for three days. And then, hey, we're going to extend you for 48 hours. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so, you know, at that point, you probably ran out of food. Right. Very little left. And then we would get back to like those giant, giant defect chow halls on the mech. And you're filthy, can't be paying all your stuff. And some first sergeant or gunny would just turn you away. And you're like, dude, I haven't eaten in like three days. Yeah, I'm right. 19 years old. I just want some food, dude. I'll get it to go plate. I'll get out of your hair. I won't make a mess. And then you would get that conventional just, you know, hey, Marine, why do you look that way? Hey, yeah. And you're like, do you know what happens out, you know, 10 miles that way? And it was always kind of that like very weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a weird relationship. I mean, yeah. I'll jump, I'll kind of fast forward towards the latter, the latter part of my career. And I'll give you a, a, a funny story on that. So I check into my E6 PME, my professional military education to get promoted E6 to E7. Day one, Sergeant Major comes in and everyone's in their alphas. So that's the green suit and all of your ribbons and your, you know, dive bubble or device and your shooting badges. So it's a lot of stuff. But very quickly, you can see everyone's entire service record right mm-hmm. there on their chest. Mm-hmm. And so the sergeant major comes in, a um, couple of ribbons, nothing too crazy, and immediately starts to berate. I think there were 17 raiders, a handful of infantrymen, and a bunch of recon guys. And the first thing out of this guy's mouth, 
you know, all of you Marines that have been doing nothing but back-to-back -back deployments, you guys are what is wrong with the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps is about drill and ceremony. And we're kind of like looking at each other like, uh, no, I think it's about fighting and, you know, doing yeah. that kind of stuff. That, um, that, that is such a weird culture. It's like history, history just passed this guy by. Bizarre. Right. Bizarre. Like, this is, yeah, this is 2015. It's not like we've yeah. been doing for 15 years, dude. <laughs> so I think, you know, sorry to jump ahead, but no. I think that that's a good way to kind of capture some of that mindset. And that's not everybody. And some mm. people, you know, my mission while I was there were to take those E6s and, and say, hey, if you've got a stand up stud young Marine, push them towards more, push them towards Marsock. This is what we do, this is how we do it. You know, just because you have a beard, you're not combat, you know, ineffective. Right. right? Stuff like that. So, um, I mean, that guy sounds like he wanted, like, the Marine Corps to award, like, medals or, or, like, badges for DNC, you know? A little drill and ceremony. Let me see your about face yeah. there, Marine. Oh, not not so good. So, <laughs> with... Uh, it's crazy. So, so, with Force Recon, you were on your way to Afghanistan at that point, right? No, our workup was actually to go back into Iraq mm -hmm. and just do direct action or potentially be attached to, at the time, would have been the 13th Mew out mm -hmm. of California. And so that was the focus. Nothing but breaching and CQB and just getting really strong, right? Like, you know, we would always joke like the recce guys would just kind of be on that hostage diet, really, you know, face sunken, kind of skinny. And then all your DA guys are just a bunch of gorillas, you know, walking around. So um, we definitely got on that program, and then, yeah, we were preparing for that. And then this would have been probably early 2006. Um, we were up in Hawthorne, Nevada. We came back. We spent about 40 days up there in the desert doing long-range mobility, uh, sniper stuff, you know, some fun stuff up there. And we came back, and it was kind of a – it was really funny. Like, I remember we got back to the parking lot, and they're like, hey, uh, things are changing. We're not, and they just disbanded Force Recon. Uh, you guys are in something called um, Man Sock or Sock or Mart, some, something. You guys are in SOCOM now. Have a good day. Like, that, that's how I found out. No joke. Like some random dude, some random guy, probably. You're, you're in like, Man Sock now, kid. What? You're in Man. Oh, it's the worst name. Please change it. So, yeah, you know, right? something where we don't know what we're going to call you. And then I remember shortly after that, like somebody had the idea. They're like, "All right, grow out your like, you know, have long hair and a beard." And we're like, "I'm like, oh, this is cool. Like, what else do we get?" And then, um, yeah, from there it was just, you know, at that point we didn't really know what was going to change. Uh, we still continued on for the duration of that entire pre-deployment workup. Like we were going to Iraq, probably going to get on a mew, right? So a big boat and just slow float over there. Um, and then not too long before we deployed, they're like, Hey, you guys are going to go to the Philippines. Cool. New guy. Come here. You guys are going to go to the Philippines and go do a J set. And so we had at the time, you know, in terms of structure, we had, it was called the Dasser platoon. So you had direct action and surveillance reconnaissance. So you had roughly a 50 man platoon. So more for like the historical aspect of it, they took force recon fourth platoon and disbanded that and turned that into MARSOC. And then we became, so it was uh, Marine Special Operations Battalion, Company A, and we were the Dasser Platoon. And then we took the same Force Recon model and we brought over 25 infantrymen from 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines from 3-1 as our like trailer platoon, as our security platoon. 
Um, so within that organization, we had three 10 man DA or like a Salter type mm-hmm. elements. And then we had two of the most senior teams. Uh, I think they were eight to 10 man each. And that was our surveillance reconnaissance. That's, you know, they're all Marine Corps scout snipers. They're all, they've all been in force recon. I mean, these were the best of the best guys to be right. in that, in that position. Um, and so from there we left Southern California we flew into the Philippines and we ended up doing, I think like a 50 or 60 day uh, J set. And so we took, you know, the SR guys went to one spot. We went to a very Southern portion of the Island and then our trailer platoon went to another, another part. Um, and then at that point we were like, so are we going to go home in a month? Like, what are we going to do? And then uh, towards the tail end of that, they're like, Hey, Surprise, you guys are going to go to Afghanistan. You guys are flying to, I think we flew to Kuwait and then to Kabul, like, shortly after that. And then from there, we just, you know, yeah, it was it was pretty funny. And, I mean, I think probably um, at the same time, we had the first, the very first East Coast MARSOC platoon. Their Dasser platoon was actually kicked out of country for a whole bunch of stuff that everyone has since been cleared of. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time it was very it was very precarious right mm-hmm. and like we joked about earlier you know our, our i'm going to paraphrase here but our, our pre-deployment speech from the two-star at the time was hey don't fuck this up you fuck this up it's going away and then he just walked out of the room and all of us were kind of looking at each other like all right no pressure like don't fuck it up here we yeah, go and, and just a editor's note in a couple of weeks we're going to have fred galvin on the show who will be able to tell us in depth all about that first marsoc deployment and how, yeah. thi- how things got turned upside down and i'll, I'll just say I, on, on my end pete I, I was just a e5 i guess at the special warfare center going through the q course when a lot of that stuff happened and i mean there were crazy rumors going around yeah. socom about what marsoc yeah. did mm-hmm. and how these guys just went through a village just lighting up every house and all this stuff oh, that tur- yeah. turned out to be completely false but that was the, that was what the talk was within special operations at the time oh yeah so now imagine we show up as you know already we're new already like big marine corps has already made this very difficult for everybody else and then you throw that in. And so, no kidding, we, we leave the Philippines. We fly directly into Afghanistan. We're at Fog Brown or Camp Brown on Kandahar. And they're kind of like, well, we don't really know how to employ you guys. What do you guys do? You guys like SF? You guys like SEALs? Or you, what, what do you do? What do you do that we don't already have? And so, just very quickly, we took the, hey, we're the new guys. We'll wash windows. We'll sleep. We'll sweep floors. Whatever it is, we'll take it. Like, we've got to prove ourselves at this point. Um, so we stayed on Kandahar for a few weeks and then they pushed us out to Fob Price. There was a seventh group team out there and the short of it is no kidding, right? Like we were literally on a leash where half of our platoon would leave with the senior half of the ODA. And then the other half of our platoon would leave with the junior half of the ODA. And no kidding. We had to have adult supervision that whole first run. That whole first trip was very much like, okay, like, can these Marines do this? Are these guys a bunch of cavemen? Or, like, can they adapt and be welcomed in and actually succeed within this community? Well, what's so crazy, though, is had you not deployed as MARSOC, had you just deployed as Force Recon, the Green Berets wouldn't have asked that question at all. Like, you're the same right. guys. Right. I mean, did you guys, when, yeah. they, when they, like, renamed you, did, did you have the same, basically, T-O-N-E and everything like that? 
Um, no, I mean, it was almost doubled at that point. I mean, a forced recon platoon is probably 24 men on average. Uh-huh. And then you would have, you would have a security platoon. So we doubled that platoon size, still had the entire security platoon. But then I think one of the bigger differentiators, and this is where I will give like upper Marine Corps or whomever some level of credit, we had and have always had a very robust support element. So instead of an ODA showing up, you know, to FOB whatever or AO whatever, and then needing to pull from the ODB or pull from SODIF, Siege SODIF, we just showed up organically and had SIGINT, human, COM, Motor T, everything. Yeah, that's fantastic. So we, yeah, and so that's, again, you know, I will give kudos back to like Big Marine Corps and some of that expeditionary planning was, you know, we've got to be self-sufficient and we've got to be able to figure it out. And if we just bring all of these minds together, we'll, we'll probably be okay. And it Honestly, it worked out really well. And, and MARSOC was kind of an outgrowth of debt one, wasn't it? Oh, big time, man. Big yeah. time. That was the proof of concept to U.S. SOCOM that Marines could get outside of the box, could perform. And those guys did really, really, really well. And for, I would say, probably 95% of that, you know, the debt one component. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I think every single one of those guys had been in Force Recon for, I think, 10, 12 years. So a couple enlistments. Every one of them had been to Ranger School. Like, they had very comparable requirements to some of the higher level units. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. And then put all those guys together, and they went out and did really good things. And so that's that's certainly the lineage. You know, you've got Recon, Force Recon, and then out of that, they took the cream of the crop, put that into debt one. And then from that, they said, all right, Marine Corps, here is, you know, the way it kind of funneled down to us, you know, was, hey, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, once we need we need more soft guys. And so you guys are, you know, Rumsfeld's Raiders or whatever, some silly thing, right? And then, um, which the Raider thing goes back to World War II, obviously, you have Carlson and Edson's Raiders. Um, and something that not too many people know is when we actually stood up as Barsock, a handful of guys from my platoon, I believe three guys, went out, sought out living world war ii marine raiders mm-hmm. and ask them permission you know hey can we please carry on the title of marine raider and the guys were you know super humbled absolutely allowed us to do it and from there um very early on you know 2006 we were immediately identified as raiders to which big marine corps said absolutely not you will not use that name you cannot have that title how dare you you're a marine the, the slogan used to be you are a Marine first, special operations is what you do. Right. And you're like, that's so silly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they still had that. Um, the, uh, some of the other units have it too, and I guess it's especially harsh in the Marine Corps where there's like two identities, two masters who are trying to serve at the same time. Like in, in SF, mm-hmm. there's there's this cultural clash also. Are we unconventional guys? Are we trainers? Are we DA guys? Like ex- who are we supposed to be? And it sounds like the Marines certainly – have gone through that. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that more, I, I guess, as, as this unit evolved. Um, yeah. 
So what was that deployment like when going out with with a quote unquote adult supervision? I'm not sure how much adult supervision seventh group has to offer. <laughs> um, no, no offense to my seventh yeah. group friends, but yeah. Yeah. however, let's talk about those Central America, <laughs> South America deployments, folks. Oh, yeah, those but, guys were great. Those guys were so good, man. I think uh, <laughs> we learned a lot from them. They were so gracious. I mean, they brought us in. Uh, so at the time, we're in Goresh, we're on FOB price. So three quarters of that FOB had been occupied by the Brits. And there was a very small soft compound. When we got there, I think there was some, I think ST6 guys, the seventh group guys, and then maybe another small contingent, maybe some randoms. Um, but man, those guys were great. And I think that that opened my eyes up. You know, the first trip we went out the very first mission was a qrf i think it took us three and a half hours to get there and we're driving on a hardball road you know by the time we got there i think there was one or two kia and i think an agency guy was either wia or kia but that really like opened my eyes we're coming from iraq you know 18 months prior there's people everywhere you could just be on a rooftop and look around and be like oh, i see that unit oh, i see that unit okay these guys are over here there's air assets everywhere and then you get to Afghanistan, and you're like, I drove three and a half hours, and I've seen nothing. Yeah. Like, we are definitely in bad guy country. And and three and a half hours um, is the QRF, right? Three and a half hours is the quick yeah, reaction yeah. force. Yeah. 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 That's a – dude, exactly. And so um, we get out there. We help those guys out best we could. We remain overnight, and then we're like, oh, well, we're out here. Let's just go do some combat reconnaissance patrols. So the next day we get out and, you know – from the seventh group guys, we're already smart on listening to icons and, you know, labeling and marking trucks in a way that when the Taliban would call it out over their icon, we can identify who they're talking about. Um, for the icon, for those of you guys that are listening, it's, you can go by the radio, like Walmart, formerly Radio Shack. It's just a plain text, single channel, no crypto. Anybody can listen to it. So you could just literally put a scanner on and hit channel 114.50 and you can listen to whomever's on that freak, the frequency. Um, that, so anyway, back to that first deployment was great. Like I said, we would typically go out for probably three to 10 days and just do movement to contact. We would just drive out of Fob Price, we'd get into the Wadi, head north. Uh, we would be you know, paralleling the Helmand Valley River, which is a north-south running river. Uh, and then, you know, as soon as the sun would come up, we would already kind of have been on high ground, um, which surprised there's a lot of legacy anti tank mines up there from the days of Russia. So we learned that lesson uh, pretty hard. Um, fortunately, you know, we didn't lose anybody up front from that, but we definitely went through a few trucks. And then just back to kind of being out there where it's predominantly a soft conflict, you know, a, a GMV would hit an anti tank mine. And we couldn't tow it out, right? right. The remnants of it. We would just strip it and then just drop JDAMs on it. You know, and again, coming from Iraq, we're like, you know, my truck gets hit with an ID. Well, we'll just call a seven ton and they'll come tow us. But here, like, no one's coming to get you. Like, you're very, very much out there. Um, but yeah, back to that first patrol. So we, you know, we show up on that QRF, to your point, David, is hours to get there. A couple guys are already dead. The next day, I think we were in Hyderabad, Kaliagaz, someplace kind of sketchy in the Helmand. Um, and one of the first incoming mortar rounds kills a guy. Uh, you know, we had a British captain attached to us and, you know, he took a round or took frag to the chest and unfortunately expired. But that very quickly woke me up to like, oh man, Iraq and Afghanistan are very different. 
on so many fronts. Yeah. And so um, then we spent the next 72 hours just, I think we ran AC-130 Spectre dry. We ran a B-1 dry, a bunch of F-15s, and we were fighting tooth and nail and very quickly, you know, adopted what 7th Group was doing, and that's, you know, get in, occupy high ground, ICOM chatter from the Taliban will begin. You'll see all the women and kids leave. You'll take a couple of semi-accurate rounds of either rocket, mortar, recoilless rifle. And then from that point, we'll engage with heavy guns and then, uh, you know, just call and cast. And I think one of the bigger differentiators probably a little, little bit through that deployment was, I would say we were slightly more aggressive than the Green Berets we were with. And just probably just because we had more numbers. You know, you guys know, Jack, you're in an ODA, like you don't have a whole bunch of guys with you, you know, so we have this robust platoon, we have a security element, so we can actually, you know, dismount and go and assault through an entire village and be right. okay. They, they didn't have any so image with them at that point? Dude, I think we had a truck of five guys. <laughs> check the block. <laughs> yeah. that, that's it. Like, and check. Yep. We met yep. sort of requirement. Right. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then most of the time, you know, the engagement would start and those guys would just leave and you would talk to them. You're like, dude, what are you doing? Like, this is your country. Come fight, man. Yeah. Come on. Like, we'll help you. We'll work with you. And they're like, we're just making sure our egress route is safe. So we'll just be a couple terrain features away. Yeah. Thanks. And bro. so, you know, right. I know. And so, yeah, great, great deployment. I know I, we, yeah, I think killed a few hundred dudes within that deployment, just like our MSOT alone. Like, so MSOT is Marine Special Operations team. So between us and the ODA, we, we did some pretty good, pretty good damage on that first trip. A lot, a lot of fun. So was this the resurrection of uh, MARSOC that you had, uh, where you were now yeah. back in the good graces of Special Operations Command? I think at the end of that deployment, it was definitely one of those things. But I mean, for the, for, I mean, for years, Jack, we would, I would tell people like at the SODIF and you're like, oh yeah, I'm, an, I'm a Raider. And they're like, you oh. what? And I'm like, oh, uh, Marsoc. And they're like, the fuck's a Marsoc? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no one knows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no one knew. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, that very quickly, I think changed the trajectory of Marsoc. And it's just because as you guys know, sometimes just having the right people at the right time was enough of a, you know, a differentiator that, not only did MARSOC, you know, it's still going today. Um, I would say within a year and a half of that deployment, we were given ODB level responsibility and RC Southwest and the Hellman, you know. And so I think that spoke volumes of just where we were and the caliber of guy coming to the fight. What about like uh, money and toys? I mean, you, you know, you went from Force Recon to MARSOC. Yeah. Was, there, was there a noticeable difference all of a sudden? Oh, man. Night and day, David. I did, dude. <laughs> my my deployment to Iraq in 2005, we took Vietnam-era Kevlar or uh, flax, cut all the Kevlar out and lined the floor. You know, I had my little L-shaped steel door. And then on this deployment, I'm in a GMV. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is great, dude. I'm like, we went from having like maybe a 249 on the top of an old shitty Humvee to a 50 cal, a 249, and a 240, a bunch of rockets and a mortars, and then five you know, gunfighters inside of a truck. Right. Um, that was a big one. And then just a lot of the skill sets, a lot of the schools, a lot of the, you know, AFO and some of that stuff. Yeah. You know, once the aperture started to open, you're like, oh, oh, there's some really cool stuff. And you know, so I think that was, a, 
you know, and again, we're late to that, you know, and we don't have any of that infrastructure set up. So, you know, we're sending guys to 18 Bravo, 18 mm-hmm. Charlie, our corpsmen already go to the 18 Delta course. Um, then we're bumming off of NSW for some of our, you know, level one, two, three stuff. Your and then gel. eventually we, I believe we, we got into our own program, but yeah, yeah. It was really cool. It, it's such. It was such a disservice to you know to recon to force recon, maybe to, to another extent to Anglico to those units that were out there, especially units, but were competing with the rest of the Marine Corps for the peanuts. Honestly, the Marine Corps has always gotten, um, and by yeah. keeping themselves out of that SOCOM JSOC money, man, they. You know, it's crazy. After after that deployment, what was uh what was it like as far as like Marsoc developing their own selection course? Because previously these four guys got kind of I don't want to say grandfathered in, but sure. they, they were the first yeah. generation of Marsoc guys. Um, how did the selection come about? Yeah, so you bring up a great point, man. And so when we stood up in two thousand six, initially it was excuse me, we should mimic a an assessment and selection of a special mission unit and if you don't make it you don't make it and so the entire command was like well we can't do that like we need people to go and do this function right now and if we do a selection and half of you make it like what are we going to do so denied you guys cannot do that and so for a lot of the senior guys they're like this will come back at a certain point when some young guys like did you go to selection did you do that no, I didn't, dude, but I set up the unit and did back-to-back deployments. Does that count? Like, we're, we're still – we're good. Um, but that was definitely a push from a lot of the senior enlisted guys within you know, transitioning from Force Recon into MARSOC was, let's mimic an SMU selection. Let's do it, and if you make it, you go. If you don't, sorry, man, you're going back to recon. Good luck. Best, you know, best of luck to you. Um, and then from there, to your point, Jack, like, you know – absolutely grandfathered so around that 2009 2008 2009 time frame they're standing up so at that time you have first msob marine special operations battalion on camp pendleton you have second msob and then you have the headquarters and at the time we had it was called fmtu foreign military training unit that was no kidding just for to bolster numbers. They just took a bunch of infantry guys and said, hey, you guys are now special operations Marines. Here you go. They then later turned into it's called MSOAG, Marine Special Operations Advisory Group. So they did nothing but just pure FID for mm-hmm. the first couple of years of Montauk. And then from there, you know, so there's a lot going on, right? We're in the height of the global war on terror. We've now disbanded first and second force recon. We've now pulled a bunch of infantry guys to stand up this foreign military training unit. Big Marine Corps wants their people back. So that that's contested. And at the same time, we're trying to model a selection. Like I said, really after green, like, what do they do? How do they do it? Why do they do it? You know? And at this point I, I have zero say in this, right? I'm such a young guy in this, but you hear the rumblings, you hear the development, mm-hmm. you see what's going on. You know, you're coming back from your deployment, you're giving, you know, actionable objectives for them to train to. Um, and I want to say probably around 2009 is when that first selection was ran. And then they stood up the schoolhouse and started that that pipeline. And uh, something else I wanted to bring up that just occurred to me is uh, MARSOC also created like like their culminative exercise, I believe. Is it Derna Bridge? It is. And, and that it sounds like that was like really like you guys 
Well, I'll, I'll let you say, I mean, what was it that Marsoc eventually, the conclusion they came to as far as their identity, what they want to be, what they want to do, what their role is in SOCOM? Sure. So I would say what we've turned into now definitely mimics an ODA. Uh, I mean, your average, special, your MSOC, your Marine Special Operations team is probably almost an ODB light. Mm-hmm. You've got your 14-man, you know, Raider team. And then guaranteed you'll have, like I said, your support package per team is a human, SIGINT, Motor T, Camo, Data Guy, all that extraneous stuff. And then typically you're running three to four teams within a company. Mm-hmm. Um, so very quickly that kind of, you know, our buddies in seventh group and then later on in third group and fifth group, and they're like, dude, like, why didn't you guys just, I mean, do something different, right? I mean, so... I think we have a couple different naming conventions that are slightly different from an ODA to a, like an MSOT. But beyond that, like we're pretty much modeled directly after you guys, Jack. <laughs> so, <laughs> did you did you guys find uh, like the seals? Not necessarily the seals, the guys, because they're they're guys. They're gonna they're gonna square you away. But I mean, like the sure. command and the navy in general. Did they try to did, like push you guys down because they didn't want the competition? No. No, honestly, I would say even at the command level, I would say beyond the first probably year to 18 months, I think people were very skeptical. And then I think once we were proven in that summer of 07 deployment from the West Coast, I think that was proof of concept of like, okay, we'll let these guys stick around for a little bit, but we're still unsure. Um, But like I said, I mean, Dave, we lean so hard on the Army infrastructure and NSW's infrastructure for a lot of those special operations skill sets that we had no clue about so far behind on. Yeah. And so I would say after that deployment, you know, people like, oh, yeah, I've heard about you guys. Like you guys, you guys deployed and you're like, yeah, we did pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, we deployed. Like like we're going to keep going. Yeah, And so I would say for, for the most part, everyone was very professional. It was definitely like big brother, little brother. Yeah. You know, I was going, if we were doing something with Rangers, some of the ODA guys were very much like, all right, little brother, like this is, if you're going to come play, like stay out of our way, but this is what we're going to do. And then I think at a certain point we kind of finally showed like, Hey, we are on par. Like, right. Let's do it together. That's great. Yeah. Cause I mean, obviously I knew the seals and, and the SF guy, like the guys, the bros will be bros, right? They're always going to help yeah. another guy. We're yeah. all just bearded bros. In uh, the end. Yeah. But I didn't know how the commands would be. And it almost sounds in some ways like the convent, not the conventional, but, but just the regular Marine command was more of an obstacle than like the Naval command or, or anybody else like that. Oh, big, big time. You know, there, there's something else, you know, so we set up in 06 uh, big Marine Corps came down and said, hey, we're going to put a five-year time limit on guys within MARSOC. Mm-hmm. So for you guys that are – so at the time, the MOS, you know, military occupational specialty is 0321. You're a reconnaissance men. It was, hey, you have five years to be in MARSOC, and then after that, you'll go back to the conventional recon battalion. Because at that time, Force Recon was disbanded. There wasn't enough manpower. There wasn't enough, oomph, you know, sheer numbers to stand that back up. So it was, hey, you got to kind of touch the magic, but now we're going to send you back down. And that's Mm -hmm. not a ding on the recon battalions. What those guys do is incredible and extraordinarily difficult. However, you know, to you guys, it's like, hey, you're in Ranger Bat or you're in an ODA. Now go back to just shy of an infantry platoon. Right. And so very quickly it became very contested with a lot of the guys of, I'll just get out. Yeah. 
Like, what are you going to do? We'll just leave, you know, and which is, I think, probably unprofessional, but I think it, it got the point across. Um, so shortly after that, they came out with the new military occupational specialty of 0372. But then that was just, you know, to help bolster retention numbers within the organization. What was their reasoning for doing that five-year sort of drop-dead time? Yeah, so the Marine Corps, I would say it's good and bad where, you know, they'll take a guy that's an F-18 pilot. And for the first portion of that enlistment, he's flying, he's dropping bombs, he's landing on, you know, little decks out in the sea. And then for the, a little bit of that, they're going to put that guy on the ground. Mm-hmm. And he's no longer flying. He's now a forward air controller. So it's very, it's back to that Marine Corps expeditionary style of war fighting. Right. It was kind of that same thing where, you know, it, it's unlike the army where, you know, you could stay in the infantry, I believe your entire time. Mm-hmm. And for the Marine Corps, they're looking to help spread mm-hmm. that knowledge. So you might have a guy, you know, previous to MARSOC and even before the war, before the GWAT, you'd have a recon guy that would do eight years in recon, but then in order to get promoted would have to go serve big Marine Corps. So mm-hmm. it'd have to go be a recruiter, have to be a drill instructor just in order to stay in. So there was always like that give back, back to big Marine Corps. Right. So we call it a B billet. Um, so it's something like drill instructor recruiting, whatever it is. And they're like, you have to give back to big Marine Corps. Like what if we took one of you and put you at an infantry battalion or mm-hmm. put you back in a recon platoon? Mm-hmm. And so just immediately, guys, unanimously, we're just like, I'll get out. Mm -mm, Nope. And I think I'm sure that's not the reason that they let us stay. I'm sure it came down to more just the fiscal nature of it of like, hey, you know, how much do you put a soft guy through training? You know, zero to 100, probably well over a million bucks. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it it reduces the... uh... It it chips away at the continuity of the unit also if you're having really, really quick turnover. Yeah. Yeah, big time. And so um, fortunately that was resolved and that went away, but that was very much like big Marine Corps, like trying to get you back, right? Like, hey, we're going to get you back and you're going to go out and you're going to take this great stuff that you learned and you're going to go teach everybody else. And part of that argument is, well, half of what I could teach you, we can't even do. We're not even authorized to do. Like, Mm -hmm. this is silly, you know? Right. So it's interesting. Uh, I'm going to ask you about spinning up for the next deployment, 2009. Uh, I want to give a, a quick uh, shout out. Actually, we're, we're sponsoring ourselves this time <laughs> around. Uh, if you guys are interested Not. in uh, supporting the stream, you like what we're doing here, there's a link down in the description to our Patreon page, um, and you'll get access to bonus segments, bonus episodes, and also you get these episodes ad-free. Um, without any of the ads inserted from YouTube or uh, on the whatever the podcast platform is. So check that out if you're interested. And uh, we really appreciate everyone who supports the stream. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, guys, help us pay our rent and buy some booze. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. 
Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. But we appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. So, Pete, 2009, uh, tell us about kind of like, you know, spinning up for that deployment and getting into it, heading back overseas. Yeah, so we came back. So that, that deployment was extraordinarily long, right? I think we did 55, 60 some days in the Philippines. Then we did a whole Afghan rotation. And then big Marine Corps, in the interest of bringing people back, said, hey, guys, we're going to put you on the Mew. And so they actually put us back and we floated home for a month and a half with the 13th Mew, wow. which is kind of funny because they don't have operational control of the unit. And so at that point, we're taking up significant resources you know, we probably had like a hundred and I think it was a hundred and twenty-five man signature. Then all of our gear and a lot of I mean, there was a lot of stuff. Um, so we came back from that deployment, probably took a couple weeks to leave, and then you know, they sat us down in a room. Hey guys, good job. Who doesn't want to go be an instructor and who's not gonna get out? Raise your hand. So we a couple of us, you know, most of us raise our hands and like, all right. You're no longer Alpha Company. You're now Delta Company. See ya. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's that's how we stood up. What would have been the fourth company at the organization at the time was now we're standing up Delta Company. So they no kidding, just shell game like uh, we don't have enough guys yet. So Alpha Company, we'll put over here, and then Delta Company, you're in. Yeah. And so, so Alpha, so Alpha Company did their deployment. They're off. They're off now. We're sending Delta Company. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Crazy. At that time, we've got Bravo Company had relieved us. Those guys are over there. Charlie Company's in the hopper. They're, you know, months away from going over there. And then we're third in line. And no kidding, I think probably three or four guys left from that platoon. And so going into that 09 deployment into Delta Company was amazing because at that point, we're no longer the new guys. You know, we still kind of had that, hey, we'll do extra chores. We'll put our hand up first because we're still new and we still have to prove ourselves. Um, but very quickly it changed. The pre-deployment workup was very different in terms of exposures of training, uh, the level of training, uh, you know, your weapons are starting to change, right? right? You went from this old school M4A1 kind of cr- like clunky old Colt to like, oh, I have a like Daniel Defense, like, wow, this thing's super nice. <laughs> you know, so some of that stuff started to occur. Um, and then at that same point, you know, we're taking a lot of the lessons learned from Afghanistan of like, hey, what didn't, what capability didn't we have that we wish we had, right? So like uh, mortars, that was a big thing we took away from the seventh group guys. I believe their team sergeant, uh, first name's Tony, great guy. The second we were troops in contact, that guy was on the 60, just doof, doof, just handheld the entire time, just killing guys wholesale. So immediately we're like, okay, this is a capability that we need to harness. Um and then, so we do our normal pre-deployment workup, which usually entails, you know, a couple of months at home station. So for us, Camp Pendleton, your medical, your, com- you know, your comms training, uh, shooting, long range, your mobility stuff. And then from there, we're training all over, you know, the continental United States. And then at that point, uh, let's see, when did we get there? Probably February of 09 is when we got back out there. Um, and by that point, that was really interesting to see because that's when some of that buildup had started, right? Like there's a much larger Marine Corps signature there, much larger conventional army signature to the Northeast. Um, 
And then that deployment was great. We were sent, my team was sent out to Fob Robinson, so in Sangin, right along the 611. And we were attached to a third group team. And same thing, got along really, really well with those guys. And then that deployment was very different, just obviously, just for where we were, right? Like you guys are familiar with like a, a two team FOB. You know, it's a two team FOB for a reason. Um, the probably bigger reason is just enemy like contact, you know, and that was probably the bigger thing. I would say during the six, seven months we were on FOB Rob, on average, we were attacked every other day. Really? You know, so, oh, yeah. It was interesting. Like, you'd be going for a run, like, around the FOB or whatever, and then just all of a sudden you just hear just an insane volume of fire starting. Like, oh, shit, back to work. Here we go. And it just was such a regular occurrence. You know, we um, we lost a couple of our, our host nation or partner nation guard force. You know, we had a really accurate, very aggressive sniper, enemy sniper, um, so it's just one of those things where we went from being on a, a nice camp, we're on FOB price, it's safe, the Brits are doing all of our external security, there's no concerns. Bob Robinson, we're just south of Sangin, we're in bad guy country, and we're getting attacked, like I said, on average every other day for almost six straight months. And so, you know, you would be asleep in your container and then all of a sudden, like, the 120s are going off, and you're, like, 25 yards from the 120 pit, you know? So it was a very – you didn't really get to shut off, right? There was never really that off switch yeah. because you know, you're, you're walking around your fob, and you're like, is that a guy? That's not a guy. Fuck, that's a guy. That's not a guy. You know, things yeah. like that. You just – you could never let your guard down. So you're very much in the red the entire time. And so that was that was interesting. And then at the same time – the IED threat really started to change. You know, it went from a very high metal signature, legacy Italian, Russian anti-tank mines, um, and then just really rudimentary IEDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then by 09, this is where we're starting to get to a lot more of like the victim operated, you know, pressure plates, probably low metal signature, but still relatively high. You know, you can pick it up or see it, detect it relatively easy. Um, but I would say that was a noticeable shift in terms of how we operated and then just contingencies and planning in general. Do you know, uh, this might be above like your pay grade, but I don't know. Do you, were you ever aware of, or did you ever find out why were you guys attached to SF? It seemed to work, work, work out well for you, but do you know why that happened? So the first time I would say was probably just as a result of what happened from the East coast guys on that first trip. And again, those guys are all phenomenal. I know a bunch of them have all been since cleared and should have been cleared immediately. Right. Um, So I think that was probably just a lot of the higher level command, just insurance policy of just, Hey, at least they're out with these guys. We'll be fine. And then at the 09 timeframe, I believe it was Fob Robinson. I want to say Anaconda. There was like two or three, two team fobs where it was just so kinetic and there was just always something going on. At least that's what was told to us. You know, initially my team got there and like, Hey, you guys will be in Delaram, which is more of like central Afghan. You're kind of in between, you know, Goreshk and like Farah, right? Like almost in the middle, um, which would have been a pretty, pretty boring deployment. Um, however, they said, Hey, I mean, dude, no kidding. We're getting ready to go on our very first patrol out of Delaram, out of that village. And they said, hey, we just had a bunch of ODA guys get hurt or killed. Something happened. We need, You guys are going to go to Sangin. You guys are going to Fob Rob. Like, three days. Figure it out. 
And so I remember when we drove into it, the ODA that we met with was like, you guys, you drove what way? And you <laughs> your trucks really act like, and you're like, that. that's when it really started to hit of like, huh, you guys seem pretty worried. I'll yeah. be okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then you start to figure out like, oh, oh that's why they're worried. Okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, I remember reading like the Insum, the Intel summary where a couple of guys, enemy Taliban fighters had gotten into a portion of the FOB. You know, they made it through the HESCO or over the HESCO and were dicking around in the FOB and we're like, huh, this is very real, very quick. Yeah. Yeah. Pete, you mentioned uh, a number of uh, anecdotes, uh, you know, in, in some of the, the material you sent us uh, that I'd just like to hit you up about because I think there's some very interesting operations you were on. Um, can you tell us about sure. the uh, clearing operation in Watan in, in Afghanistan, uh, where there's a, a rooftop IED that you guys got hit with? Yeah. Holy cow. So, okay, so this is my third MARSOC deployment. This is fall of 2011 um, at that time. And this is a pretty good measure, too, of just, I would say, MARSOC's just ability. Um, at that point, we've got the 7th Kandak or 7th Commandos um so Afghan Special Forces Commandos, um, our ratio had switched, you know, from like we're joking about earlier, five guys in one Humvee that would leave, you know, my first trip in 07 to now in 2011, where we have a forced one to five ratio. So for every one American, for every five Afghans, there's one American. Uh -huh. So we would typically roll out 90 commandos, six interpreters, and probably 12 to 15 U.S. And that's it. And we'd fly out with 160th, you'd have 30 commandos, two Terps, your American package, you know, per bird. And then we'd all land and mutually support one another. Um, for the Watan mission, we had VSP, your village stability platforms. Um, so we're supporting another MSOT from our company. They're trying to move closer to the river and to very, very, very much bad guy country. Um, so it's supposed to be, I think, a nine or 10 night op. Um, get in, land, nothing too crazy. We fight the whole next day. That night, we ended up moving about 2,500 meters through extremely high IED just land, right? And so your pre-mission brief, it's low, medium, high, either very high or extremely high. Um, and so most of the time when we were going out in the helmet, it was always the highest IED level. Um, we start, we're looking, you know, for a place to remain overnight and firm up in and fight from the next day. And that was kind of our, our MO. You know, we'd land, we'd have our compound of interest. There was either a, a target there, a JPEL, or, you know, some reason that we're going there. We'd go there, conduct that business, and then just firm up within that. And so prior to, you know, we're gaining all of our pattern of life. So we know for sure that, you know, women and kids may occupy this compound, or at least it's safe, right? Human beings can walk around in there. So I knew roughly 2,500 meters to my north. We've had good pattern of life on my compound of interest. I feel good about it. We get up to it. Um, and it met all of our criteria, right? We saw a livestock walking around. There was a fire in the compound. And I had honestly thought, you know, hey, whatever guy that was here probably just didn't want to be hassled by the ANA or Americans right now. So the guy just booked it and that's it. And so at the time we had moved to doing tactical callouts, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. You get to the compound, you get, you know, complete perimeter security around it, put a couple guys on a rooftop. We would have one of our one of our Pashtu speakers, another Raider or a Terp, get up on the roof. Hey, you guys are surrounded. Come out with your hands up. 
And so we're in that process. Nobody comes out. So the Afghans, the commandos start going in there. And then on their walk out is when one of the guys stepped on, we think like a 12 to 15 pound pressure plate. Um, and so no kidding, myself and my buddy Jake are, you know, do toes like over the edge of the roof. We're looking down. We're just watching the guys to, you know, walk out of the compound. And then next thing I knew, I woke up on my back. My nods were off. My peltors were off. And I knew I was on my back. So I'm like, okay, fingers, tested that. Toes, good. Okay, cool. There's no holes. Good. And I looked over. My buddy Jake, Jake Montez, scratching out. Um, oh, you guys know Jake? No, no, I was saying you checked the old beanbag, too, during that. Sorry. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Jake Cervantes, great guy. This is his first deployment. He now owns and operates Sangin Instruments. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of them. It's a great watch company. Yeah, it rings um, a bell, yeah. So, anyway, uh, I look over at Jake, and Jake's kind of moaning, right? This is his, his first time he's been blown up, like, that close. We get up, do a quick sweep on him, turn the nods on, turn the peltors on, and then... From that point, you know, kind of go back over to what's left of it, look over, and you can see casualties. And at that point, you know, get off the roof. And then we immediately went to work on those guys. Fortunately, one of the other elements was about 1,100 meters to my east, excuse me, to my west. Um, so, you know, we get these two casualties. We get them out in the field. You know, and at this point, too, you've got to sweep for all this stuff, right? You can't just walk over there and, like, go pull your casualty out of a hole. Like you have to finger sweep up to them, right? And for, for our listeners out there, imagine, right? You got a, a hard angle like this and you're literally sweeping away at dirt until you get to an, a hard edge and you can see that 90 degree angle. You're like, oh, that's probably a pressure plate. That's not natural. So that's the hard part in that type of a scenario. You can't just run and go get that person. Right. You've got to, for self-preservation, sweep up to that guy, get to him and then pull him back. And then you can work on them. And so um, myself and one of our 18 Deltas gets to work on the casualties. One guy ends up dying. One guy lives. Um, and then at that point, my commandos were so demoralized that it was just, hey, we're done trying to find a place to firm up tonight. I called the other element and said, hey, we're going to walk over to you. Please clear a space. See you soon. Um, fairly concussed you know i'd walk like five six steps boom fall over get back up keep walking fall over 10 15 steps um and then eventually we get to that compound and again like we're walking through like you know essentially a minefield and that's not not even being dramatic um and for that like i walked number one guy point man on that deployment like the number one human being um the team that we ripped out with did a great job. However, a lot of those comfort-based decisions that the commandos would make, we just, we couldn't afford it. And it just became out of frustration one night where my commandos are trying to go one way. I'm trying to tell them with the laser, Hey, go this way, go this way. And they wouldn't do it. So I just took off. They follow me. And then from there, I'm like, Oh, I made, I made a mission. Like I, I can walk point. Like, yeah. All right. It's sketchy, but we'll figure it out. Um, and then from that point on, I think for the next 30 missions, I probably not even probably 30 missions. I walked point on that deployment. So it was, it was hectic. It was a little yeah. stressful. <laughs> I imagine. We made it. So, yeah. And, and then what happened at that point? Because uh, you said that you got mm -hmm. a, Apaches overhead. Yeah. So we get into that compound, go to sleep a couple hours, wake up immediately. Icom chatter. Hey, we see the Americans. We're going to advance for an attack. 
So I take myself and a handful, probably five Americans and probably 10 Afghans. And we leave, we go out, we get about 150 meters out of the compound and get hit pretty hard. Um, we ended up assaulting through the majority of that fire and then maneuvering about two, a little over two kilometers throughout the rest of that afternoon, just fighting and killing dudes. We get to a compound, you know, I'm looking at my Garmin Montana, the sweet GPS. I'm looking at that, you know, so now I can see the full GRG. I know where we are. Like, man, we're really exposed, like two, little over 2K. Like they've got, if they wanted like decent enough freedom of movement in between our two elements. So, hey, we'll stop. Uh, we use a wall breach, breach through the wall. We're in the compound and now we're redistributing ammo. We're trying to find water. So we got, you know, water purifiers. We're doing that. Um, and we're redistributing ammo with our commandos. And at the same time, so the one picture I sent you guys where it's got the misfits, the fiend skull, and I'm carrying that bladder. Mm-hmm. That picture is probably 30 seconds before what I'm about to tell you guys. So we're hanging out. We take off all of our gear. I've got one or two Afghans up on the roof on security. And our you, our Air Force CCT is named Sasha, phenomenal operator. Um, he's talking to a British Apache. Hey, we see a guy moving north to south. He's about 100 meters north of you. Appears to have a weapon moving directly towards you. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, there's no way. I just I just used five pieces of C4, five boxes of C4 and blew an entire wall down. Like they have to know where we are right now. And so I remember I put on my Peltors and I've got no gear on. I have just my M4 with one, two, or three rounds and a full mag. You got 28 rounds and my Peltors on. I'm like, just in case my rooftop security is going to see him and they're just going to dust this guy with a 240. Mm-hmm. I remember looking out the gate and I'm like, no shit, there he is. So I look over a couple of the boys and I'm like, hey, we'll let him come down once he's in the alleyway because it was he was coming through a field. And then it hit two compounds and then a big alleyway. I'm like, once he's like five or so meters past both compounds, we'll just open the door and we'll dump him and we'll just, you know, the day continues. Because mm-hmm. um, the thought was then at that point, he can't go left or right. He's channelized. Like, right. We own this guy. So the British Apache's calling him out. Hey, we see a guy. Well, my interpreter comes up. Hey, Commander Pete. And my this bad dude sees him. Bad dude tears off running. So I go chasing out after him. So I've got Peltors suspenders a t-shirt some cry bottoms and my carbine and that's it my buddy eric who's our bomb tech he comes out after me so we go chasing out after this guy and now i can see the barrel of his ak like oh this guy's done so we get out we're out in the big field we're shooting at him my buddy eric and i the guy falls it's probably like thigh high poppy at this point and we can't see him eric jumps into the ditch into this canal that the guy took to go north so Eric is running towards him and I'm running directly at this, this individual. And as I get about probably dude, maybe five meters at the most, at the absolute most, we may, we lock eye contact again. He's on his back. I can see his chest rig now. He's got his AK and from his back, oh, full on a, dun, 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 dun. I have nothing on. Right? <laughs> and so I see him and I'm just continuing. I'm looking through my can. I'm like, Oh no. And I just keep shooting him in the chest. At the same time, unbeknownst to me, this British Apache, hey, I see three guys. Oh, they're engaging one another. Oh, they're engaging him at extremely close range. One man has an X on his back. That's me with my suspenders. Uh-huh. Hey, we're going to go ahead and hit him. And then my CCT, Sasha, ended up pushing the this gun run just slightly north. Uh-huh. So back to us on the ground, right? 
back to, and this is like a company wide clearing operation. Like our, my company commander can hear this. We're out there with a third group team. Like people know what's up right now. So I'm still advancing forward on this guy. I hear my buddy Eric yell, I'm out of ammo. Cause same thing. Yeah. It's totally his Peltors. I hear him yell, I'm out of ammo. So instead of going straight on him, I kind of button hooked around to the side and then just closed and just shot him in the face until I was out of ammo. Um, run out of ammo. And then immediately I'm like, get a picture of this guy. We're about to get hit. Mm. And so there's a picture of me like knelt down next to this dude. And then the very next picture is us pinned down in this like small bit of defilade. Mm -hmm. So now this gun run from the Apache is going off. No kidding. Maybe 30 meters to the North, like terrifying, absolutely terrifying. The entire tree like is just going off. And I'm looking over at my buddy, Eric, we can't make out what it is. And then we're kind of just like, it pauses, it stops. And then all of a sudden the earth just starts spitting up around us and come to find out there's a PKM about 125 meters to the north of us. Oh shit. Very much, very much locked in on where Eric and I were uh-huh. withering, withering fire at this point. Like, I mean, the earth, I'm laying on the ground and I can see it and I'm like, oh, this is going to hurt shit. And then I'm like, all right, well, we can't move without fire. So I remember I like moved up to the guy as he's expiring Grabbed his AK, reached into his shit, grabbed a fresh mag, reloaded his AK, popped up to a knee and started putting rounds where I thought it was coming from. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, boo, the whole tree like boo, just unwraps. And so now I'm back like pancaked. But now I can see the I can see the Apache. I'm like, oh, we're golden. Yeah. I'm like, hey, next gun run, Eric, like next gun run. And definitely not this calm, right? Like, right, right. <laughs> 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 we're done. Like, next gun run, we're going. And so, you know, third gun, so I pop back up, take some shots. And then as soon as that third gun run starts going, we just end up, we just haul ass back to our compound. By that point, all the boys have all their gear on. They're coming out to try and figure out how to come get us. My buddy James, who is our medic at the time, he's an 18 Delta. He jumps off the roof. Same thing, no gear, just a scar with 10 rounds. He's out there now. You know, so now there's three knuckleheads with no gear. This dude that looks like hamburger beef, and this British Apache that's just wanting to just get some. Right. So the three of us idiots, you know, we run back, do our thing. And I remember, you know, you talk about like stock with your partner nation force and rapport. You know, I'm like wearing this dude's insides, and my commandos are like, Commander Pete, like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, but I mean, it. It's a cool story because it works. Yeah. Right. That, that that's honestly it. Um, well, I mean, like, I, I, like most cool stories are are cool because they worked, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, that so that's probably around dinner time that that occurs. We come back. I bring the rest of my guys up to me. Nightfall hits, and then I called in. So our cast stack was ridiculous, right? Our close air support. Um, on an insert night, we would have, you know, one or two Preds. We'd have either two, sometimes four F-15s or two A-10s, AC-130 Spectre gunship, and then we would have our rotary wing support, so a Huey and a Cobra, and then we would insert on either three or five MH-47s from the 160th. So we, we were, we had a lot of weight behind us. Um, and so that night, you know, we, we ended up having to leave that guy there. I've got his AK, a fresh mag. Uh, you know, we got to get biometrics on this individual and see how, you know, who this guy is. Right. So we go out, we get biometrics on him. The database of guys we killed this day. 
Yep, exactly. Um, come back, and I'm like, you know what? Let's just use this guy, kind of like hunting, right? Like I don't, I don't hunt, but this this sounds like a good idea. Um, I called our rotary wing support, and I had a Huey come and sit on the deck for like a minute. I'm like, hey man, can you guys come sit on the ground for like a minute? We're gonna fake that a 47 has landed, and we've exfilled. A false we're gonna leave that guy there. False extract, and we're gonna yeah. get these guys in the morning. And so, boom, it works. The Huey lands. They're on the ICOM. Hey, the Americans have left. The Americans have left. Okay, stay stay where you are. First light, go check out their compound. Go. So we're up. You know, we we knock out our little holes. You know, through all of the mud. We're like, we're we're watching this guy right that I'd killed the day before. And sure shit, here comes a guy with a shovel, and he's on his ICOM radio, right? Which you guys know for us, that's you've got positive identification at that point, right? Yeah. You can see the radio. Yeah. You see the big antenna. Like, oh, you you're done. Yeah. So the guy gets here, gets closer, and he's literally on the other side of the wall. And they're like, I can hear him. Blah, 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 blah. And then our guy's like, Hey, ICOM chatter states the Americans are gone. Bring them in. Blah, 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 blah. And I can hear him on the other side of the wall speaking posture, giving out commands. So he walks from right to left in front of my gun, my gun port, and I see him. And I'm like, Oh, buddy. And I can see clearly he's on the ICOM, which again, we've got positive identification, enemy combatant, it's on. Right. I hear him again, blah, 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 blah. And then our guys, ICOM chatter states, and they say it. And then the guy walks over, and then he looks right into the hole and just goes, ee! And I dumped him real quick. And then from there, you know, the gig was up at that point. They knew we were still there. Unbeknownst to me, we had probably three or four guys to the east of us also moving up. We just didn't know it. And uh -huh. just... That was it. Those guys ran away, and that was it. So that's it was a fun. I mean, you're pulling out the classics, some Vietnam era tactics with a false extraction there, man. Dude, like, you know what? I carried a Ranger handbook on every single patrol I went on, and I swear to God, I read that thing regularly throughout that trip. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a good. I could do that. That's a good idea. <laughs> and I would do it, right? So. Yeah. I mean, and that that's a lot of, in my opinion, what makes soft so great is it's the brilliance of the basics and it's just doing the basics better than everybody yeah, else. Being yeah. tactically proficient. Yeah. Well, it's funny because mm -hmm. earlier when you said, you know, it's, you know, it, it's a cool story uh, because, you know, it's a cool story because it worked. It's like, I mean, that's kind of how oh, most cool stories are. They're either... They're either cool because they work yeah. or they're cautionary tales when they don't, you know, it's like <laughs> oh. that. It's like that hero or zero moment. Like, Oh, he was a badass. Oh, yeah. He was a badass or he should have known better. Oh, a hundred percent. Oh, that, that was, I had that moment just with myself just that evening, you know, kind of found a quiet corner of the compound, just smoking a cigarette. You know, I don't smoke like here in the States, but right. overseas, like I don't, I, I never dipped. So it's like, cool. We're on something. So I'm smoking my cigarette. And that's probably the quickest I've ever smoked a cigarette in my entire life. Because I just remember looking through my L-can and just seeing the muzzle flash and just being like, fuck, this is going to hurt. Ah! And just kept marching towards the guy and just putting rounds into him. Yeah. So that's, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, Can you tell us cool. about the uh, – it was a nighttime operation where you guys got compromised on the way to the target? Oh, man. Yeah. So um, we go in. We've got a target. We've got to pass a couple compounds on the way there. Of course, you know, they hear us coming up, but we're in trucks. They So they hear us. 
So in route to our target, a bunch of military age males are popping over the walls. So we have to go and address them. Well, one of the guys was like, hey, let's just let's just breach this door, right? Let's just keep it going. So they breached the door. Bad move on our part. That alerts the entire village at this point. Right. So my whole dry hole, we we take those guys, drop them back with the security platoon. We hop back down, and now we're moving uh, in a ranger file towards this target. Uh, good buddy of mine, Joe, we'll call him Joe L for this. Joe L gets up. He's walking point. He sees their sentry with an AK. You see a bunch of lasers on him. We dump that guy. And then almost immediately, probably three or four guys with AKs and at least a PKM open up on us. And we're probably 25 to 30 meters away from them. Um, so now, you know, we're contact right, you know, back to Vietnam era tactics. We're in a ranger file, contact right. Everybody's doing it. Good volume of fire. Well, then another position of enemy opens up and now they've got RPGs and another machine gun. And now it's getting weird. And so now like we're trying to shoot these guys, trying to see what's going on. And the volume of fire is heavy. I mean, they, they know exactly where we are. And I remember I'm trying to shoot these guys and off to probably maybe two meters away. So six feet, my buddy RJ is off to my left and he's third in the order of March. We're shooting, shooting, shooting. And outside of my 15s, I just see this bright, bright white flash. And then I see RJ just slump down. And then I remember getting small and I'm like, RJ, you okay? Dude, like a robot just didn't say shit, pop back up and kept fighting. Right. And so what had happened was a round went into his M900. You guys remember those really big surefire mm-hmm. like, handheld assists? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he had one of those and a round from something hit that flashlight and then exploded into his throat. Jesus. Oh, my God. He took it, you know, a little hole here, a couple little holes, pepper into his throat, falls over and just doesn't say shit, gets back up and keeps fighting. Kid you not, just in it. So I'm like, oh, shit, like we're doing this. So we're fighting, <laughs> fighting, fighting. Uh, Chris, another one of the junior guys in our team, it's probably like the seventh or eighth in the order of March. He has a law or an AT4, I forget. He's got some rocket. So he goes out, gets away from us, and he's trying to fire this thing off. Murphy, no, no rocket. We're done. Oh, shit. So now we ended up doing an Australian peel, right? Like right back to Vietnam era tactics. This is right back to what I practiced as like a young 19-year-old kid in the jungles of Okinawa. You know, first guy goes, boof, he peels off. Second guy peels off. Third guy peels off. I put in a fresh mag, put my rounds out, and then run back, do a reload. And we end up having to peel all the way back. Um, we tried dropping cast that night. We had coalition air, and they were like, oh, we we don't see any enemy combatants, no cast, have a good night. <laughs> and that was it. Um, we ended up having to get back to the trucks and then we just used organic weapon systems from there and then carried on about our business. Wow. Pete, uh, there's a few other things I wanted to ask you about, but since we're here, I can see the, uh, the, the Pete Perry, I love me wall behind you. Can you show us the oars? Because this is a Marine Corps. Yeah. Tra- this is a Marine Corps tradition. Uh, tell tell us about so this, these what, what what they are what they mean to you why why they're given sure. you sure so what this is so there's controversy in the recon force recon and Marsoc communities of where it actually originated mm-hmm. however what I was initially taught was when a marine raider would leave his team or his platoon in World War II they don't have anything else to give them but they would have his paddle because you're a part of a boat team. Mm-hmm. And they would take parachute cord and do these very ornate wrappings around it. 
the size of the paddle depended on what you did, what type of an impact that you made, and then just your time, you know, actual time there. You know, I've seen good guys leave a unit and not get anything. I've seen guys leave a unit, get a plaque. I've seen guys leave and they've got fully operational, you know, uh, Harris 117. You guys know the KDU that detaches from the radio, like mm -hmm. inside of the handle of their paddle, right? So these, these things can be really ornate. Um, each wrap is supposed to represent something different. Each color is for something different. So this particular paddle is from my time at First Raider Battalion. So as you guys can see, it's definitely splattered in blood because we killed a lot of dudes. And then on there, right, it's typically the devices that you've earned. Um, if a guy is leaving out of the service, typically you'll put ribbons, sometimes medals on there. Um, but yeah, each thing, you know, is supposed to represent something different. So on this one, it's actually really neat. The guys didn't use 550 cord. They actually used leather. So this thing is super tough, super taut. Um, and then, yeah, so this is from my time at 1st Raider Battalion. And then on the bottom, you know, you'll typically put a couple different quotes or different things um, down here on the bottom. And then I got this one. Let's see. When I left the service, right? So like I was saying, different things are on there. Guys will do different things, right? Cool. So oh, that's nice. Yeah. On the back. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, the blade says Raider. Nice. Oh, yeah. Um, trying to do that. Um, but yeah. And so, you know, I can I can look back at these. You know, these, these are some of my most prized possessions, right? Yeah. My house catches up like wife, kids, paddles, hard drives, guns. Right, like in that order kind of thing, and so, um, yeah, that's that's well, kind of. And, and then is the green one from uh, Recon? Yeah, so this is from my time at Recon Battalion. Um, you know, same thing, a younger guy, smaller stack stuff, and then you got the Recon Creed on the back, and then again, just different different things. And typically, what we'll do when a guy leaves a unit, right? Like if if we're gonna award somebody with a paddle, we'll have a big paddle party. Um, and that's where just everybody else that this individual has worked with can say their, their kind of last words or just final piece to them. And then at the end, that's where you as the recipient can go around and, you know, you say your final piece to, to all your, all your guys. And so that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a cool way to, a, that's a cool way to offer guys some closure as, yeah. as they leave the unit. Yeah. 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 That's a really good way to, I'd never even thought about it, but that's a, it certainly is closure. Like cool. This chapter done on to the next. Yeah. No, that's very that's very nice. I uh, yeah. Let's see here. Uh, tell us about you. You uh, also got to work with a fifth group team. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, um, same thing. We're just a little bit south of that big ten day op down in Watan. Talking about that, um, I think they're in Zombele was the name of it. So this this was kind of a funny, funny interaction with this fifth group team where they'd been to Iraq a million times. You know what I mean? What's the one crazy fifth group video where they're like throwing flashbangs and just, it's, Oh, that's, it's, it's a SIF. It's the SIF. Yeah. It's a one five. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, Oh, that's what we were doing. And you're like, <laughs> Oh, this is very different. Like we're yeah. closer to like Vietnam era stuff mixed in with like really cool modern jets and sensors and platforms. But beyond that, like this is kind of a, we're in it. Um, and so I remember, their team chief, their warrant was like, Hey, we're gonna go down to this place that Americans have never been to, and we're gonna have a we're gonna have a meeting, we're gonna have a show with the village elders. So we get out there, same thing. I'm walking point, 
So we're carrying on average, no kidding, fellas, because we had to turn in our weights to the 160th every month. Every American would go out in excess of 130 to 150 pounds of additional weight. That's great. Regardless of what we did. Yeah. And then they, they had they had each of you uh each of you had to weigh in. You step on the scale and, yeah. and take the weight to report up yep. to the yeah. pilots. Yep, exactly. And so it's like we know for a fact like how much weight we're carrying. So me and the rest of my guys we're going out there, we're kind of doing like a commando light is what we would call it, right? So we've got their ANP, so they're like local national police, and then some of like their militia guys out of their VSP site. We get out there, as soon as the sun's coming up, the Taliban are like, holy shit, Americans. And the other Taliban are like, no, they don't come here. We're good. Carry on. And they're like, no, no, for real. There's a bunch of them. They're coming. Get ready. So we get into the compound. We're hanging out. And then sure as shit, the team chief is like, hey, man, remember that compound of interest that's like 1,200 meters that way through open desert? I want you guys to go check that out. I'm like, <laughs> We're going to fight all day. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'll go there tonight, but, like, we need to firm up because, dude, we would bring, I don't know how many sandbags, you know, we would get into a compound once it was cleared and safe, and we would have all of our commandos, no kidding, fortifying, like, gun pits oh, up wow. on the roof. yeah. We would use hatches and cut through the mud. Now we've got gun ports. I mean, we're putting rockets through them. We're setting up our mortars, our big guns. Like, we're ready to go. And so I'm like, hey, sir, I, I, do, I would really like to do that tonight, like, under the cover of darkness. And he's like, I think you'll be all right. I'm like, ah, dude, we've been here for, like, five months. You've been here for, like, five days. It's not that way. So he's like, just go. I'm like, all right, man, we'll go. We get, like, 50 meters out of the compound. We see the Americans hit them and we just immediately get hooked up. I'm like, oh, shit. So we assault through. We get to a little bit of defilade. The fire is now coming to the north, and we're hanging out. We're putting some good shots on these guys, and I would hear this behind us, and I'm like, the hell is that? So I get as low as I can. I'm looking back, and they're shooting their, what is it, a 38 millimeter, the VOG round, like their equivalent of like a 203. Like like their equivalent of the Mark 19. Or like under, the, it's the uh, oh the yeah, yeah. It's under, yeah, under yeah, yeah. they're equivalent oh, of the so, two or three. Yep, and so now they're sending those at us, and we're like, oh shit! But fortunately, it's like knee deep mud, right? Mm-hmm. This is like March, so they're mm-hmm. watering all the fields, everything's soaked. Mm-hmm. And so these rounds would land like five feet behind us, and just <laughs> blow up in this mud. We're like, oh, we got to move now. So. We call back to this warrant. We're like, hey, troops in contact. We need casts. You know, let us know. And we get back like, oh, we're in a meeting. We're in the Shura. Stand by. We're like, oh, we're, this is not good. Like, we're getting hammered right now. <laughs> Withering fire. There's rounds coming in. So what we ended up doing is because we didn't have ground force commander approval. I'm like, hey, you know what? We have the daytime MC-130. Let's have them just do a giant wall of fire just from – what do they have? Is it like a 28 mil or 30 something mil? Like whatever, like their like machine gun equivalent is. So they're just putting rounds to the North. I'm like, that will negate these guys being able to egress and we'll just close with and destroy them. So we're running towards them, you know, same thing, Ranger handbook, alpha element, Mm -hmm. base of fire, Bravo element, maneuver element, running towards them. Mm -hmm. So I'm running towards these guys. We have our base of fire. We're the maneuver element. We're moving up. And I'm talking to the, 
It's the daytime MC-130. We're talking to him. Hey, man, keep going north up through this, you know, through this canal and 25 meters, turn west. And you're like, running, right? Running. Bam, going through this canal. All right, turn. Boom, I'm running. And like, hey, you should see a guy. He's right in front of you. I'm like, all right, cool. Oh, there's the guy. And so it's me and we had a rep from Jaedo with us, a former unit guy. So he and I are moving through this canal. I'm in the canal. This gentleman's up on the bank and we're moving through. And I see this guy like 10 meters away, five meters away. I'm closing on him. And he doesn't, this might sound kind of goofy, but dead dudes generally look kind of funny, especially if they've been dead for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. This guy didn't look goofy to me. So Mm -hmm. he's laying there and he's got his arm over the PKM. And so I'm standing there. And then as we're moving up, he goes and starts to move for the PKM. And Mm -hmm. I I just, you know, shoot him in the head Mm -hmm. seven, eight times, put him to sleep. He's done. And then the rest of the guys were able to egress out. But it was one of those things where it's like, you know, it goes back to we're telling the fifth group team, and this is nothing on those guys. They're phenomenal. They had a really great trip. They did a lot of good stuff. But in that moment, it was yeah, like, yeah. sir, this is a bad idea. So I'm just you know. out of curiosity, so the the person who told you to uh, – who, who was like, Roger, Dodger, you're safe in the daytime, was the same one who was in a Shura meeting – and was too busy to approve your call for fi- your your cast. Yeah, <laughs> that was my element, and then the other the other mobile element. And so it was funny because I I had the eighteen Charlie and I think one other ODA guy, they're out with us, and so they're trying to be like, hey man, like whatever his name was, like dude, like we're in it, like please support. And then we had the I'm other- drinking tea right now. Calm, cool, cool, calm down. Having some chai. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Relax. Yeah. Like, you're like, I'm I'm not as calm as you are. <laughs> Things are very, very different where I am right now. So yeah. you know, you know, so we do we do our we do our business, we get back and we're debriefing in the compound. And the guy was dude super professional. Like he wasn't like once we debriefed, he was like, Oh, cool. Like, you know, and you could tell. In that moment, you know, it's very vulnerable for a guy to be like, hey, dude, I fucked up. My bad. I'm sorry. He didn't fuck up, but it might have been one of those things where we're coming in telling him, like, and this may have happened to you guys. Hey, you guys are going to go to Village X. It's this bad. And you're mm-hmm. like, there's no way it's that bad. Like, these guys are probably stretching it a little yeah, bit. Yeah. And then you mm-hmm. get, like, oh, shit, it is that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shit. it should should have listened that- to his NCOs. It's also challenging, though, when you have a leader put you in a position that where where uh, wisdom or or at least caution, you know, can look like cowardice because they're not giving you that option. So when you're saying, hey, this isn't a good idea, we should wait for nighttime. Yeah. Like, that's the prudent thing. And so yeah. when they when they won't accept that and they go, hey, it's like, get out there. And then it's like, okay, shit, right? And then you go out there, and if you don't get hit, you look like, you know, the you know Chicken Little. Like, oh, the sky is falling. <laughs> but if you don't get hit, yeah. you, you can't go back and say, I told you so. You know, it's just like, oh, yeah. it's tough when, when leaders put you in that position because they don't sort of respect your situational awareness or your interpretation of the situation. Yeah, and I mean that happens all the time, man. I mean, SF Raiders, Rangers, whomever, I would say are certainly guilty of a little bit of that. Of like, dude, I've you know, and that guy's been doing this for twenty years, right? right? Like, dude, I've been doing this. Like, I okay, cool, right? right? Like, who am I to say, you know, hey, dude, like, 
whatever you're thinking is wrong and this is what's gonna happen right you know and so it's absolute benefit of the doubt you know that's their first time ever going there that was their first major movement outside of that fob that was a great learning experience everyone lived no one was hurt right great right and so i think after that they're like oh like this is a little serious right and so we had a similar thing with that third group team so during that big clearing op we bring them in and we're like hey guys here are all of the horrifying types of ieds that we find in the helmet and we get done with the brief and they're like so you guys are like messing with us and they're like no you know like yes there is an anti-tamper finger sweep like ied yes like absolutely it'll rip your head off nah, i don't think it's so bad and then we get out there and they're like oh it's definitely that bad mm-hmm. thanks guys mm-hmm. you know and so I think it's one of those things where we've all been there i've done it dude oh, this is my fourth deployment what what am i going to see that i haven't seen before right and you get out and you're like oh, you're very quickly humbled right so uh, speaking of the IEDs, can you tell us about the clearing uh, operation you did in the bazaar where you found a, a, a huge IED? Yeah, yeah. So we're up, um, we're probably west of Musa Clay. We're in a place called the Gandamarese Bazaar. It's like 400 shops. Uh, we get in, immediately ICOM chatter is going off. They're calling us on, you know, we're doing, um, I forget what it's called when you actually prep with the AC-130 on like pre-assault fires. Thank you. Yep. So we're doing full on pre-solid fires for all three elements. We're doing our thing. We get in, not too contested, um, firm up. And then the next day we fight tooth and nail all day long. And then from there, we're taking like pretty accurate sniper fire. Um, so the next day it was, hey, we're going to move through. We're going to clear this entire bazaar and then, you know, try and rid ourselves of the sniper threat. Well, we're going through this bazaar, going through this bazaar, and I'm climbing up like this makeshift ladder, right? So same thing, like you sweep up to it, right? Put a ladder up on the roof, get up, and I'm trying to get some situational awareness. And for me to like, you know, I could touch it was, a, I think it's called the RT, RD2, some, it's a RCIED, uh-huh. you know, thing. So you see the battery, you see the antenna, you see the coil loop, and you're like, oh no, here we are, shit. And it's like immediately you're frozen. Yeah. You know, it's daytime. They can see me. I'm fucked. Like this. Yeah. So I called over the radio to my mom tech. Hey, Eric. Hey, dude. Uh, I think I see an RCIED. What do I do? Hey, man, come off the ladder. Um, we were fortunately running jammers. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's probably why I'm still here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, dude, it was it was it was one of those experiences where you get back and just, you know, how close you were to just it being your very last day. Yeah. So, I think the jammers and the jam, I mean, all through the war, the jammer, the jammer technology, like uh, I, I think it'd be hard to ever uh, estimate how many lives those jammers saved. It's one of those things where it's like, if no IEDs go off, is it because the jammers worked or because the IEDs weren't there? So it's something that you can like underestimate yeah. or, you know, yeah. um, you never know. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to be rude real quick. I'm going to take an intermission for a rest. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, folks, uh, join us uh, next week. We're going to have Doug Wise on the stream. He is a career CIA officer, did a ton of stuff, um, really interesting guy. And I, I think maybe this is the first time he's ever, like, been interviewed on a podcast or anything like that. We get the good ones. Yep. We get the good ones. Really cool guy. And then the week after, as we said earlier, we're going to have Fred Galvin on the show. And that's going to dovetail really well with this episode because Fred was on the very first MARSOC deployment, and 
Um, as we alluded to earlier in the episode, those guys, straight up, they got fucked. They got fucked over for politics, political nonsense. Um, but Fred will um, tell us all about that stuff. He has a book that just came out, um, thankfully, where he tells his story and the story of his Marines. So we'll, uh, we'll catch up with him in a couple weeks. So, Pete, uh, back to you, man. Um, I have one question here from a uh, viewer. Uh, interesting question. Yeah. Uh, Jackson asks, will MARSOC, will MARSOC ever stand up a JSOC component, or does it just make more sense for Raiders to go to, uh, oh, oh, for the, like the exchange program where Marines end up, uh, they serve some time in Delta and then come back sure. to the Marine Corps? Yeah, so Jackson, great question. Thank you for your question and thank you for tuning in. Um, there's definitely been discussion. Um, I've now fairly fairly removed from that. Um, I would say eventually I, I could certainly see it happening. I know that we do have a, a decent enough presence within JSOC. There's, there's a handful of guys that are there that are doing very extraordinary things. Um, so I think it would, if anything, it would kind of be like the debt one kind of mm -hmm. thing, you know, is, is how it was often talked about how it would go is, hey, we'll pony up our best and brightest and we'll do a tryout just like we did for convention or not conventional, but regular SOCOM, white SOCOM um, and see how it goes. So I, I, I could, I could see that happening in the next probably five to 10, if, if it ever did. And this, is so, and this is something I'd like to open up here at this point. It's kind of a discussion um, from your point of view. As uh, MARSOC has certainly evolved as time went on, as the unit matured, as we're now kind of getting into this, uh, I struggle to say post-GWAT era, but we're certainly moving into a new time frame. Um, for the United States military, missions are changing, units are changing, priorities are changing. Uh, I, I'm interested in what do you see as the role of MARSOC? Do you think it will, uh, is it just, I don't think any unit in special operations is just going to continue business as usual. They're all going to have to evolve and change based on the theaters of operation and the new mission sets. But from your perspective, how do you see, what do you see as MARSOC's role in the special operations community moving forward? Sure. I think, I think it'll be a lot of the same. I think it'll be, you know, we can bridge the gap and it, it's kind of funny, right? Because people will look at SEALs and be like, oh, they're the only ones that can dive. And you're like, mm -hmm. there's whole dive SF teams. That's all mm -hmm. they do. And they're mm -hmm. really good at it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think for a little bit, it probably just depends on like theater of conflict and where it is and what's going on. Um, but I would say for the most part, it's probably business as usual, you know, in terms of whites off with the ODAs, the, yeah, ODAs, the Raiders, and probably a little bit of NSW. So I think this the DA, the counterproliferation, the FID, um, some of the SR type stuff, um, I think will certainly continue. And I think it'll be like anything else where, you know, it's, it's innovate or die. You know, mm -hmm. and I think at that point, you guys know as well as I do, um, when you go to the TSOC commander, SODIF level, Siege SODIF, like you're just as much as a salesman within your special operations team is some guy that works at, you know, Apple, right? right. Like you're a salesman, you're going to sell right. guys. And so um, I think it'll be really interesting. I think some of the near peer or peered threat stuff will be very, very interesting in terms of how that plays out, preparations for it, um, and then just technology too. I mean, I think like anything else, just as more things become easier to get, like night vision or thermals, I think. Right. 
a lot of our tactics, a lot of our TTPs are going to have to evolve. But I think for the most part, it'll be the same kind of the pillars, right? SR, DA, counter-proliferation, FID, yeah. that kind of stuff. Has, did you see a change while you were there and from the guys you talked to? Now, like, is the larger Marine Corps, I, I, I say big army, so I want to say big Marine Corps too, but is, is the regular Marine Corps, are they more accepting of MARSOC uh, now or is there still a contention? I think it's a lot more accepting. I think now, I mean, the guys, even down to the younger level, you know, really understand that they're an ambassador for the unit and mm-hmm. that oftentimes they are somewhat of a black sheep when they go back to big Marine Corps. And so I think as guys get out and whether that's different schools, whether that's different training within the Marine Corps, and then for a lot, not even a lot for every single pre-deployment workup, your partner nation force is often a conventional Marine Corps platoon. Mm-hmm. And so you take 20, 30, 50 of those guys and they get to see the caliber of human that's there, the type of mission, you know, very quickly, I feel like those guys would be hopefully maybe not inspired. It's probably too dramatic of a word, but I think like at least fired up. So I think now big Marine Corps sees like, Hey, Marsoc's not going to go away. We tried to bring all these guys back, you know, after their first five, that went away. Hey, you know, the whole Raider thing, right? Like that was a, something as simple as a name. Right. Hey, we're the Raiders, right? But you can't be the Raiders. And so we did, we did unconventional warfare. We did IO and a PSYOPs campaign against big Marine Corps. The Marine Corps times would come out for, you know, for, hey, you guys are fast roping. What, where are you? First Raider Battalion. First Raider Battalion. And then it would come out and we'd all get flamethrowed for it. No, it's first Marine. You're like, no. Um, there's a very, I wouldn't say famous, but prominent picture within the Marine Corps of then Commandant General Amos with a Raider patch that someone had slapped onto his shoulder. And then that just lit the fire even more. <laughs> You'll never, ever, ever be Raiders. No, you'll never get your own device. You'll never, whatever. Um, and then just over time, you know, we just, same thing. Just you super, you serve a little bit of authority, get it out there. Um, and now you have Raider battalions and a Raider regiment and you wear the Raider patch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not going to say I have, that. I have a bunch of times in this interview, like referred to Marsoc as like a young unit, but I mean, a couple of years from now, and they're going to be twenty years old. I mean, they're yeah. they're not that young anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, it's, it's it's incredible. Well, I, I it's funny because you know they you talk about how the 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 you know, the information war against the Marine Corps for the term Raider, and I, there are probably a lot of people in the Marine Corps saying. No, you can't have it because it disservices this, you know, the older, the actual Raiders. And it's like, yeah, but the Marine Corps got rid of them because they didn't want Raiders then either. Like, like that's a, that's a deep cut. That's a deep cut, you know? Exactly. Like, the Marine Corps doesn't yeah, want right. Raiders. Yeah. 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 And not only that, we, no kidding, three, at least three guys that I know went to from my platoon and met and sought out and met living World War II Marine Raiders and said, hey, guys. This is who we are. Here's our lineage. This is what we would like to do. May we please? Absolutely, guys, right? And so where it started was like us, like that first batch of guys in 2007 on the West Coast, here's Raider patch, and then you had to earn it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like, wear this thing. It's like, oh, cool, Pete. Like, you did really well in that gunfight today. Like, good shit, bud. Here's your patch. Cool. Now, when you see a young dude do his thing, give him his patch. Right. Right. And then it kind of went on a long, a long time. I would say the least the first 
five to probably seven years of very close to that, where it was like, you had to earn that, yeah. you know? And just, it kind of, like I said, it, it proliferated from there where no kidding, like Marine Corps times, we're going to, you know, film you guys doing VBSS. What's your unit? First Raider Battalion. Okay. So... It, it, you know, it's so funny the difference between the Marine Corps and the Army because the Marine Corps, you know, the Marine Corps, is, I, it is hardcore. Like Marine Corps boot camp is worlds harder than and much tougher than Army boot camp. And and you know the idea that every Marine is an, is a rifleman, you know, and and they they really stress that. And so, you know, that idea also holds them back. But but all Marines are elite, so we don't need elite force. Where then you have the Army where. Where, where in the Marine Corps they hold back their special operations units, but in the Army you have somebody like Shinseki who gives who goes. Well, you know what? Marines have or uh, Rangers have a lot of pride and a lot of professionalism. You know what? Let's give everybody a black beret. Then that'll make everybody like a Ranger, yeah. right? So yeah, that's that's kind sure. of what they did with the Army Combat Physical Fitness Test, which has been a big controversy in the Army. It's like they see these high performers and Rangers and SF, and they're like. Oh well, let's make the entire army do that PT test, and then they find out yeah. through statistical and scientific research, actually the entire army cannot, like physically, cannot and will not do. They right. will not perform at that level. Right. It's, it's just and funny. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that's yeah. okay. And I think that's where some people get really hung up on that. Dude, how many deployments have you done? Right. Let's say Jack, you're the the pay or the foo guy for your your ODA. Like people still have to do all the admin stuff, get things there, move things around. Like that is a vital cog in the machine. Right. And they should not be even close to what our standards True. are. Right. Like if we're that much of a war fighting element, we right. should be light years above that. Right. So uh Pete, tell us about uh your decision to leave the Marine Corps and kind of transitioning into the civilian world. Yeah. So See, 2015, I was an instructor. I was at, it's called ITC. It's the individual training course. It's about nine and a half months long. Um, I'd been there for roughly two, two and a half years. I was at that professional military education that I referenced earlier with that Sergeant Major. You know, you multi-time deployers, you're the problem. Right. Um, While we were there, they're like, hey, guys, go back to your units and tell them about all these great incentives to get out and do all these things. And at that point, I had never really thought about getting out. I was like, I'll, I'll just do this until, A, I die, or B, I just hit 20 or 25 years and I'll just figure it out from there. Um, my wife and I found out we were going to have twins. And like I said at the very beginning, my dad was a fighter pilot, constantly deployed, doing cool stuff. But I wanted to be around for my kids. And it was one of those things where it's like, you know, my dad would catch a birthday here, catch a baseball game here, coach mm-hmm. like a little bit of the seasons here, do some other stuff. But the guy's out fighting, doing his thing. And that I have the utmost respect for that. There's no, no weirdness, whatever. Um, so anyway, at that point in 2015, I was like, okay, cool. We're going to have kids. We're going to have twins. Like I want to be around for it. I'm going to get out. And so um summer of 2015 i decided i was going to leave i left after 12 years of active duty service um and i'm glad i did you know it was, it was a good time to leave i think just personally just family life life wise but then also professionally that was at the same time you know 2015 big gwat stuff in afghanistan's going away you know only a handful of very select teams within the organization are going to go do like big Mosul or go do these really big pushes 
and that's it, you know, and we were just so used to, or at least I was so used to like, every time I deploy, like it's going to be so kinetic. Like I'll be stoked if I make it through. And then after that, it was like, well, if I decide to stay in, I'll go back to first Raider battalion in the West coast. My wife's from here. Um, well, man, I'm going to go to the Philippines for six months and go do FID. And that just didn't sound very fun. And it right. was one of those things where maybe at the time that was an immature decision, you know, just FID is a very responsible, very adult type mission, right? Like DA, everyone, you know, everybody that's watching like, oh, DA, that, that's got to be so hard. That's the easiest skill set there is. It's also the, sex- the it's also the sexiest. It is. Right. Right. <laughs> that's that, that's why that's why you guys had more indige than the SF teams that you worked with did because fit is not sexy and everybody who's done fit knows that yeah yeah but mm-hmm. it's also uh, oh I mean fit arguably has a much bigger impact oh one hundred percent than oh. going and hitting singular targets yeah one hundred percent. But nobody talks about that time I was training that, you know, the the uh, Jordanian. No one, out in the no, no one makes a movie out of yeah, it, that's yeah. for sure. Nope, there will be no book. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so anyway, it was just kind of the, just the culmination of like, okay, if I go back, and at that point I was looking at, at E7, so now I, you know, maybe a team chief, right? So the equivalent of like a team sergeant in an ODA. Like at that point, your your fight fighting days are they're not numbered, but they're getting smaller and smaller and yep, smaller. Yep, yep. And so it's like, well, if we go to the Philippines, like we're gonna go back to the West Coast, right? Mm-hmm. I want to support my wife. I want to be a part of this. I want to be a big, you know, good family man. We're doing this. And then, I mean, just general living too, right? Like Wilmington, North Carolina, or San Diego, California. Right. right? It's pretty. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was kind of a no brainer of like, all right, I did 12 years, super fun, got super lucky, 10 fingers, 10 toes, like good run time to go. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. So tell us about, uh, this new project you're working on that you want to start your own podcast pretty soon. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I want to call it right now, at least in trial after the fight. And the concept is to take former, special operations operators and then interview them in like a 40 to like 60 minute span. And I want to hear about their worst day or one of their worst experiences and then how they dealt with it, you know, in the immediate aftermath, you know, days, weeks, months later, and then how they're dealing with it now. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, you know, where this comes from, my wife and I were watching a documentary on Amazon once a Marine, it's about a Marine Corps infantry platoon. They go to Marja, a guy gets killed. And then the, these younger men are having a really hard time adjusting. And I think about it, like when I came back from those deployments, you know, fighting the entire time, like I had good guys to look up to and good guys to go to for advice, good guys to kind of see like, Oh, like I can mimic that. I could do that. Like, um, and, but in watching this documentary, it was just so sad, right? Guys doing heroin guys are killing themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's like, dude, like maybe I can help with that. Right. And so the idea came about from that of just like, why not just do a project where I interview some guys, they tell a really gnarly war story and then how they dealt with it immediately following it. And then immediately after. Right. And so where that comes from is when I was an instructor at individual training course, my very first class, one of my students, Hey, it's Staff Sergeant Perry. If I were to do this in real life, how would I do it? doctrinally and you know from the pub from the book it says this but what did you really do and so i just here here's an anecdotal story 
here you go, guys. Like, this is this is a real story. This is what I did. And after that, I was like, man, I feel really fucking good. Like, <laughs> wow. Did I just cool. do group therapy? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I started to feel a little better. And then, you know, throughout that time, and then I would do, like, peer instruction. Like, hey, like, I'm not the only guy that's experienced this. Hey, like, you you did two deployments as a 0311 infantryman. What did you do in that scenario? And then that guy would tell his story. You know, you're like, fuck yeah, man, that's gnarly. Like, good story, good stuff, good tactics. Like, this is, we can implement this. And so it was kind of all of those things all at the same time where, like, man, I need a creative outlet. I want to help people. And I want to let these other young guys know that, like, hey, man, you can go through all of this horrible mm-hmm. stuff and, survive. and still come back and be a great dad, great husband, great friend, great coworker, like, and be fine. Yes, yeah. you might still deal with it. Yes, you might have a nightmare now and then, but like, how are you dealing with it? And right. so, right now, you know, I've reached out. I think initially it'll say season one, you know, would be predominantly Marine Raiders, just because that's that's my wheelhouse, that's my community, that's who I know. But again, the structure of it is: tell me one of your worst days, tell me the whole story in detail, and then how did you get through it? Right. And so, like. Um, And part of that too is just like how I thought that I was dealing with trauma and traumatic events, you know, like, Oh dude, I was sad for like five minutes after that happened and I'm good. I dealt with it. You know, 10 years later, 10 years later, you're like, yeah, Oh, you're dragging some guy out out of his car on the street, you know, because he cut you off. Oh wait, is this coming from somewhere? Yeah. Dave, Dave, what happened? Yeah. Yeah, Pete. If you're if you're ever interested in having a, a uh, army guy on, you know, I'll tell you a story about a friendly fire incident, like some really horrible stuff. Um, and and I'd be yeah. happy to return the favor because I really appreciate you, you know, coming on the podcast and telling some of these stories. Guys, in in a heartbeat, right? And I think you know, like if if I could end it, like I'll I'll put my stuff out there, right? Like when when we get to it and we start filming it towards the late late summer, the goal is is to have. You know, it's a 12, 13 episodes done, processed, edited, ready to go by probably October and to start to put that out. And then, you know, eventually get into like season two kind of thing where it's like, hey, like PTSD and trauma and, you know, post-traumatic growth is not singular to only the soft community or the military community. It can be social workers, teachers, moms, whomever. So the idea is to like spread it out to the masses mm-hmm. you know what i mean it's like oh you're an EMT, like you drive an ambulance every day you probably have seen horrible stuff how do you deal with that right and part of that too is like i want to be able to hack my own brain and emotions and that physiological aspect of like we've all been through a lot right and that's okay and i think once you start to tell a young man that like hey you went through some stuff you might feel a little sad about it and that's normal and that's okay and you're not weak right but you got to back to real life. And this is how I did it. And this yeah. is how Brian did it. Right. And Matt did it. And Derek. And like, here's some real examples, right? We'll be vulnerable. We'll put our shit out there. And that's it. Right. And because again, back to kind of the anecdotal part of it, you know, when my dog handler got killed, dude, that messed me up. Still messing. Dude, I'm still goofed up from right. it. Right. But I, once I came to terms with being able to own that and everything associated with it, it got a lot easier, right? Yeah. And so... Yeah. You know, and I, I... Like, I feel like it's very important to sort of normalize the whole discussion around post-traumatic stress because 
I feel, especially in the military and especially in the special operations community, but but kind of uh, kind of across the board, that sure. you know that like there's this myth that a lot of people don't seek out help for post traumatic stress because. Um, you know, because they're too macho or they're too this or too that. But a lot of times it's also because I don't want to be a drama queen. I know people have been worked through worse stuff than me. I don't really have a right to complain. And I don't want to yeah. like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like a lot of times. That's one of all, the one, one of the many avoidance strategies that veterans use. Well, I mean, oh, it's. Jack, cut it deep. <laughs> I know it is. It is post-traumatic stress. There are going to be avoidance strategies. Yeah. Like, like if, if it were just easy to go. Oh, you know what? I have post-traumatic stress. Yeah. I should get help. Hey, doc, help me. My, then it my, wouldn't be an issue. My ops are classified. I can't talk yeah. about them with the psychologist. Yeah. It's a way, yeah. way, of, uh, way um, of avoiding it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I would say for anybody out there that is listening to this, that has questions, that is struggling, some of the baddest men on planet Earth go talk mm -hmm. to a psych and they get help. And yeah. the way that I often equate it is you're on a mission, you're in theater, and the roof goes down, right? You took a rocket and you sprained your ankle and you then have to rehab your ankle and there's good days and there's bad days and then it won't bother you for six months and then all of a sudden it's cold and you're like, oh yeah, that ankle injury. To me, that's how I look at like trauma, PTS, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. It's that same thing. You experience something and you sprained your brain and it's not permanent, but it's going to be there. But through some therapy, through some physical therapy, we can improve that. Mm -hmm. So let's improve mm -hmm. it. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's how I get it. It's maybe as caveman as that is, but just, I mean, yeah, I, I would say like, and again, like I'll own my own stuff. Like after the end of my 2012 deployment, we're almost a month to the day. Um, do I have time for one more story? Yeah. Yes. Hit it up. Absolutely. <laughs> cool. So... One of my worst days was when my friend and dog handler, Keaton Coffee, he was killed uh, May 24th, 2012. Uh, we're running around. We're in a place called Hyderabad, real bad spot down in the Helmand. We're doing our thing. Um, and this is we're doing our rip, our relief in place. So it's Keaton and I from my team, and then it's the whole new MSOT that's relieving us. We're so small, probably like you guys, where you know everybody anyway. So it's like, oh, I've deployed with half these half of this team anyway. Like, this is great. Um, so anyway, we're out in Hyderabad, we infill, um, that was the first and only time that I was ever put not where I wanted by the 160th. And that's not a slight on those guys. That was just like, you guys know where you're like, man, everything was kind of off on that one. And then this happened. Mm -hmm. Of course that. Happened. So, and dude, the 160th guys are the best. I mean, those guys are like Formula One race car drivers. Like, oh, you want me to land within like a meter of you? I'll land on your head. Done. Bloop. And those guys are incredible. So we fight the whole first day. The next night we ended up moving like 2K because part of that process of moving so far is at a certain point you would advance beyond their defensive perimeter IED belt. You would get so far and so deep into their OODA loop and into where they were actually felt safe that when they woke up that next morning – we were already in ambush positions where they, where they thought they were safe. And then we could go ahead and, and reduce them and just continue our business. So the short of it is I'm in an ambush position. Half the boys are back at like our main compound. We're getting ICOM chatter. The different ISR platforms are picking up guys moving around with weapons. So I call back to our compound. Hey, boys, put some rounds out into a field, right? It's completely clear out into the field. Then it's the river behind it. 
we'll see if we can't spook these guys and maybe push them south. And it worked in the past, right? So we're waiting for these guys to run down directly into my ambush position. And as we're waiting, you know, I hear one solitude shot, like one single shot. I'm like, oh, shit, huh? Don't think anything of it. And like 10 seconds later, hey, WIA, standby for, you know, battle roster number. Like, all right. So I grabbed the new 18 Delta. And then his name's Max. And then I'm like, all right, you guys stay here. Just wait to ambush these guys. It was probably a commando up on the rooftop, like got hit, whatever. We'll fix them. So as we're running back, Max and I are just getting our just butts shot off. It's about 180 meters between where our ambush position is and then our main element. And so we're just getting our butts shot off, get back into the compound. And the commandos are all yelling and pointing up on the roof. And there's the one ladder. So my buddy Mike comes out from the incoming team. He's like, yeah, dude, I think Keaton is still on the roof. So I grabbed another ladder, put it next to that. I had a red smoke, threw the red smoke on the roof. Mike gave me his smoke, threw another red smoke on the roof. And then I started climbing up this ladder. And as soon, dude, as soon as my like helmet like broke the plane of the roof, just boom, just ass on fire. They're trying to, you know, they knew I was there. So I'm like skull dragging across this rooftop. Well, in the time that it took me to move from my ambush position to the firm base to our compound, one of the Afghan medics had gotten up on the roof and was had just started a pressure bandage on Keaton. So I'm skull dragging, skull dragging, skull dragging. I get to him, grab him by his ankles, grab him by his knees, and then I just scoop him up, you know, and kind of baby carry him. He's got no gear on. It's probably it's the hardest, single hardest physical thing I've ever had to do in my life is to pick up. Keaton was probably 6'1", 6'2", 215, mm-hmm. 200. No kit on and then pick him up and then run across the rooftop. And as you guys know, it's, you know, the undulating kind of rooftop, like little domes on the top. And just the whole time, you can just see rounds skipping off the roof. Like it was, we're in it, right? The smoke's dissipating. We get back to the ladder, lay Keaton down. I lay down next to him, and then I lower him onto the ladder. My buddy Mike is at like probably three quarters of the way up. We lower Keaton onto him. Mike takes him over his shoulder and then gets down the ladder. I come off the ladder, and we're still taking a really heavy volume of enemy fire at this point. So now, cool, Max, the 18 Delta, the medic, he's working on Keaton, trying to put him back together. And then at that point, you guys know it's like you're – you're like the chaos coordinator, right? It's like, all right, Andrew, you get up on the roof. Let's get some fire going this way. Hey, Chris, go find me an LZ. Hey, Jake, go do this. Like, let's start redistributing ammo. Like, we got to be ready for this. Hey, who's on comms with the aircraft? What are we doing, right? So it's that immediate, like, you, 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 go. Okay. And then we knew we had to get them out. We're taking a pretty heavy volume of fire. So we ended up, I ended up blowing through a wall to get out just because we're getting hammered at this point. And when I say hammered, I mean very accurate sniper, small arms, and medium machine gun. Um, so anyway, we get the medevac. We do a couple gun runs from a Huey and a Cobra and this tree line where we want to put them out. And then birds coming in. And then for listeners out there, what's really interesting is as soon as someone gets hit, I swear it's almost, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, if you guys have ever experienced this, like Jack, same thing, like a guy would get hit and they're like, oh, we hit one, wait for the medevac bird. And you're hearing that and you're like, what the fuck? Like we're in it. Like this is it. Like these guys know they just hit somebody and now they're going to wait for the helicopter. Like, okay, here we go. So we're, you know, doing area prep, 
area denial with the Huey and the Cobra. The British medevac platform comes in, lands, and you can just hear the rounds skipping off. I mean, it was they they had us right. Get Keaton out. Get Keaton on the bird. Keaton leaves, or they they try and take off, and one I, I think one or two of my commandos was like, "Fuck this, I'm out. I'm I'm going home on this helicopter. Like, fuck you guys, we're done." And so we get this dude back off the bird. We get all of our head count of all of our commandos. Get back in the compound, fight for a little bit. Then it gets dark, um, right? And so we get back to the compound, and the boys did really well, right? We had one guy. Um, obviously took it pretty hard but this is where you kind of get into that like generational difference right we have guys that have been doing nothing but deploy for 10 15 20 years that are seeing this and have seen this we have a guy that it's his first deployment and you can see just the emotional toll right mm-hmm. and you can see how much more it affects the newest guy versus the guy that's unfortunately had to experience this and then i'm running the whole show right i'm in the middle of all of this and it's like hey i'm the commander for this element this is what we're doing this is how it's going to go and so obviously you can't show any kind of emotion at that point hey we're still out here you know we had guys probing towards our compound that night where we're shooting rockets and you know small arms to push people away and then the next day we fight all day and we've got more guys advancing on us to the point where we're throwing like hand grenades at dudes right like it, it got pretty good and then we ended up leaving so it's about for keaton he got hit. He was shot right above his, I believe it was his left ear, shot right over his left ear, done. And then we medevac him. And I want to say about five, 10 minutes after he touched down, a Kandahar expired, right? Um, very unfortunate, super sweet kid. And like total Hollywood stereotypical future. He was going to get home, marry his high school sweetheart, get out of the Marine Corps two months later, and then go work for his dad at the boring Oregon Fire Department, right? And so within that, you know, all of that happens. We fight the whole next day. We extract, get back. We do our crazy, you know, super long debriefs, um, which I'm sure, again, you guys are familiar with. And then, but just for listeners, on the backside of 99% of your operations, you're probably doing anywhere from two to six hours, depending on your billet within a team of post-mission products, post-mission debrief, your Intel summaries, storyboards it's a significant amount of work i say all that to say that i processed all that stuff went through all that i went out onto a little corner of the fob cried for like five minutes i'm like all right i'm done i've grieved we're good continue and then i flew home like a week later right Mm -hmm. and that was a really really stark contrast from like dude i'm in pasadena california the rolls bowls down the street this is like super pretty like pleasantville america and I'm still trying to figure out like what happened last week, like when a, my friend got yeah, shot. Yeah, it's know? really so jarring. Anyway, yeah, right. And so there's a lot going on, trying to figure all that stuff out. And so anyway, that's where like this after the fight thing is. Like, I wish that somebody or something was around for mm-hmm. me to look toward or to, and just be like, oh, this is normal. Like, it's normal to feel sad. It's, that's called grief. Mm-hmm. It's gonna happen. You mm-hmm. went through a traumatic event. That's okay deal with it move on right but at the time very much wrestling with myself of like oh i'm weak i shouldn't be thinking about this i'm weak because i think about it like no man like you sprained your brain you went through something extraordinarily traumatic right seek help and then move on yeah and then be grateful every day that you have the chance to move on yeah and that's that's kind of the 
the origin story yeah. and spirit of how I want to do it I, and just, you know, if, I, if it helps a, a couple of young guys, then cool, man, mission accomplished. Yeah, I, I think that's a great mission yeah, statement, fantastic. Pete, because, uh, and I, I've had somewhat similar thoughts that, you know, in the books and the movies, they're, they're, we're very familiar with the sort of heroic narrative, these like little sure. ta- sold, soldier tales, but often the types yeah. of stories you're talking about those are the ones that aren't really told. And so I think we get so much of our information and like life guidance through the various forms of media. Um, I think young soldiers are kind of left, unless they're very fortunate to have some sort of mentorship, somebody who sits them down and walks them through this, they're kind of left out there flapping to figure it out on their own. So I think yeah. that the type of project yeah. you're talking about is definitely worthwhile. Yeah, so just, you know, again, the shameless plug would be we'll film end of summer, beginning of fall, and I would say probably before Thanksgiving have everything done, edited, packaged, and ready to go. Well, when you when you have it ready and when it's up and everything, let us know, and we'll give you a shout-out uh, for sure. Yeah. You know, we'll plug you, you know, get get some eyes on you, if you know, anything we can do to help. A couple I of, really appreciate it. A couple of final questions as we wrap up here. Andrew asks... Would it make sense for Marsock to adopt kukris or ridiculous large Bowie knives over standard issue knives as a branding measure? Same way the berets set themselves apart by donning special hats. Sure. Um, great question. Thank you for asking. I know a lot of the guys that did go to the Philippines and do J sets or do FID um, were definitely given those knives. They're incredible. It's an amazing tool. Some of them have been used on enemies, which is also, you know, ups the cool factor. Right. Um, there was, for a little bit, when we first stood up, we had kind of an internal, if you were a an 0372 card-carrying raider, you would get a Strider knife. Mm-hmm. And then from that same sheet of metal that they cut it from, they would make and mold a mug with the same serial number. Oh, that's very cool. Um, and then I think from that, yeah, yeah. So I think there's, there's a handful of like founding guys that have that and some other stuff. Um, but yeah, there, there was always the discussion of like, are we going to have berets? What are we going to do? Are we going to have like a device? Like, what are we going to do? And it's so funny because it's like our device, you're like, oh, that's like the knockoff Trident. Oh, your team structure. That's like the knockoff like ODA. Like, come on, guys, be original, all right? So, yeah. Uh, Ad- Admiral Apparent asks if the Marines shift to a littoral amphibious focus, will Raiders fit in more neatly doing old school UDT stuff, but part of the Marine machine already? I think the Green Berets and the Navy SEALs and SWIC and the Raiders would all be fighting for that. And I think that all three branches and probably hell, the Rangers too, there's a whole like water phase, right? I mean, I think any soft unit could train and be on par for that skill set. I don't think it's – yeah, sorry if I misinterpreted your question. I don't think that's that's solely for the Marine Corps. For a little bit, that was kind of the focus of, like, oh, we do all littoral stuff. Like, that's our differentiator. And you're like, so what, like, the water and, like, a little bit in? Like, that's – you're excluding yourself from so many missions. So, Well, thank you, everyone who joined us live tonight watching this in chat. Thank you, Pete, for spending your Friday evening with us. Uh, we really appreciate it, man. Pete, um, where, where can people find you on social media and whatnot if they want to like stay stay up with you and what you're doing? Yeah, thanks for asking. So right now it's Pete Perry Eight is on Instagram. Um, 
couple of years ago, I had a, a decent following. I was working on another project and then got off of all social media. And I'm only now getting back into it within like the last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. specifically for this after the fight project. Um, so if anybody did want to say, hey, jump into my DMs or whatever, uh, Pete Perry 8 on Instagram. Um, if you shoot me a message, I'll shoot you right back. And so um, from there, look for more content to be built out. And then again, going into the end of the summer, beginning of fall, um, I'll slowly start to release some clips. Um, and again, this is guys that have Navy crosses, guys with bronze stars, silver stars, guys that are double amps, guys that have done nothing but combat deployments for two decades. Um, and the whole goal of it is like to keep it light. You know, I know both of you guys have been in plenty of gunfights where you spend more time laughing than you did anything else. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. Yeah. There, there's stuff it's that funny. happens in war that you can't make up. It's true. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that, that's what I want to get out to people because Jack, to your point earlier, I mean, this, the whole portrayal in media is like, you do a deployment, you come home and you have PTSD and that's it. Mm. Like, and then we probably got to put you down. Mm. Whereas, you know, <laughs> we know guys that have done extraordinary things that have experienced the worst thing a person can experience. And to kind of clear the air again, like, to the listeners out there, like your worst day is still your worst day. Just because you didn't go to war doesn't mean your worst mm-hmm. day is any less than mine or Jack's or Dave's. That's the message out there is like your trauma is your trauma and you can figure it out. But And there's a future for you yeah, after I, after your worst day and after yeah. your military service. Absolutely. It's a great 100%, message. A hundred percent. And so, again, just I appreciate everyone that tuned in and listened, anyone that watches this in the future, and to both of you guys for having me on. Thank you for reaching out. This is an amazing platform, and I had a blast. Tonight. We so we really you. appreciate yeah. you joining. What were you drinking tonight for uh, all uh, for our guests who may not have seen your bottle? A little Shamo Black Barrel, nice. Yeah, we right. we finished right. the so Lagavulin, and we've moved on to McAllen. Yeah. So, so guys, we will see you all next week with Doug Wise, uh, career CIA uh, senior intelligence staff. And then the week after, Fred Galvin uh, for some more Marsoc. Uh, so thank you again, Pete. Thank you, yeah, everyone Pete, who thank, joined us Thank you tonight. so much for spending time with us on a Friday night. And, you know, tell, tell your wife that we appreciate it, you know, giving you the pass. Yep. Dude, I, I appreciate it, fellas. Again, listeners, sorry if I mumbled. This was a blast. Thank you. I appreciate it. No, it's all, all good. Right. And we'll see, we'll see everyone next week. See you thank guys. you, guys. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.